Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. I love uh, I love talking to people that are at the top of their field, right? The top of their game, like uh, Brian Tracy. I mean, some people are sitting there like, well, I don't like people that try to make it sound that simple. And, um, you know, you don't have to go chasing money. You don't have to go be in love with money and... But the reality is there are people, and if you've ever been around somebody, I just sat down with somebody yesterday that is running a huge company, multi-billion dollar company. And he, with thousands of employees and tens of thousands of employees, and it's, it's interesting how organized he really is and how it all comes down to very basic principles in his mind, in his in his head, it really is about principles. And I think that's all Brian was teaching us is there's just certain principles that are going to lead to success. You can argue against them if you want, but it's hard to argue that companies that focus on sales make more sales. I mean, if, if all of a sudden the average uh, corporation – is spending 25% of their workforce, 30% of their money on creating and generating cells, and uh, you know, a little homegrown business is spending 10% on cells, wouldn't it make sense that the corporation's going to make more money? Right? That's not brain surgery. And yet, as a small business owner, it's hard to focus on sales if you don't love sales. I'd rather create content any day, but that's useless if no one's going to go sell the content. So if you want a company to succeed, you really need to do what works. How about just long-term thinking versus short-term thinking? Have you been so busy just living your life day in and day out that you didn't plan ahead for something down the road? You ever had a trip that you knew you were going to take and you know, six months from now. And then you waited till three weeks before to get your passport. Oh, just long-term thinking, you know, it helps. It's not perfect, but it, it can certainly help. So anyway, it's, uh, it's just some basic information. Um, and, uh, but also I think if you just look at, uh, like Brian Tracy's success rate, it's pretty good. Pretty good. You, if you're selling millions and millions of books a year, you're doing you're doing okay. Doesn't make doesn't mean it's all perfect and great, but he's living his principles. He is creating sales. He is an entrepreneur. He is looking long term. If you're trying to grow a business, you probably ought to grow some of those principles as well. But there might be more. Uh, other things we can be doing. Let me give you a few more that that will definitely impact your ability to to live better. We might actually need to go back into our lives and eliminate some things, right? Get rid of certain things. There's a listen to this story of a 90 year old woman um, from Michigan decided to turn her cancer diagnosis into an excuse to travel across the United States. The woman named Norma is accompanied by her son, Tim, daughter-in-law, Ramey, and their poodle, Ringo. 
and they are out documenting their adventures via Facebook page, Driving Miss Norma. (laughs) Norma learned of her cancer within two weeks of her husband's death and told her son prior to the diagnosis that she had no interest in treatment. Her son and his wife then explained to the doctor they would be driving her around the country in her RV and ultimately receiving his blessing. As doctors, we see what cancer treatment looks like every day, he said. ICU, nursing homes, awful side effects, and honestly, there is no guarantee she will survive the initial surgery to remove the mass. You're doing exactly what I want to do in this situation. Have a fantastic trip, the doctor said. In August, the family upgraded their motor home to a larger 36-foot model and began their trip by traveling to Mount Rushmore in South Dakota before continuing through the country, visiting other landmarks, historical sites such as Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Ramey uh, told ABC News that in addition to seeing the sites and gaining more than 100,000 likes on her Facebook page, Norma's health seems to be improving. How cool is that? She's getting better, maybe, or at least feeling better. She's receiving the benefits of being different, doing something different. Notice she set a goal. She's figured out how the goal is going to work. What a great way. If, if, you, gotta, if you got cancer and you got to deal with cancer, it sure sounds like a better way to do it. Now, um, I have put together in the past a project I call the Project of Elimination. There are certain things that keep us stuck. And um, I'm going to, as we do this little coach's corner, go through a bunch of different tools that you might want to just get rid of. Things you just need to declutter out of your head. Think of it as like a spring cleaning. You know, as as spring comes uh, and winter's done, it's time to clean out the house. Back in the day, remember, they'd bring out the rugs and they'd beat up their rugs to get all the dust out of them. It's time to spring clean. Let me give you a few things I'd suggest that you start to, to let go of. Number one, let go of the stories that don't serve you. How many times have we been telling stories that we really haven't even thought about, but we use these phrases like, I'm not very good at that. Yeah, I don't do that. I'm not a math person. We might quickly dismiss something we do by saying, ah, it's just the way I am. Yeah, I, you know, I'm not, I don't like to hold the grandbabies. I, I, I want them. I'm a, I'm a grandpa that'll play with them when they're older. Well, let go of that story and pick up your grandbaby. <laughs> Get rid of the story. You don't have to be pegged by something you thought you were 30 years ago. It's not like somebody's going to say, Grandpa, do this math. So you, you don't have to be bad at math anymore. You've got a brain. You can still add. Anyway, it's simple to just sit there and have a trite phrase that we use all of the time. But many of these phrases, they're not going to help you. They beat you up. They, they actually take away something. They could take away something like time with your kids or your grandkids. Yeah, I don't have time for that. Yeah, hobbies, you know, I don't golf because it's a waste of time. Now, you don't have to go golf, but that's also a story because it could be really time well spent. Exercising, hanging out with friends, opening your mind up, meditating. 
wrapping your golf club around a tree, stuff like that. Another thing we need to let go of is the need to keep score. Let's just get very clear, folks. Life isn't fair. So if it's not fair, then there's probably no value in keeping score. (laughs) People are going to step on you. They're going to make mistakes. Someone's going to pull in front of you, and it is going to slow you down ten hundredths of a second. Yeah, it happens. Doesn't mean you need to chase them down and pull in front of them. The reason why it's not useful to keep score is because much of life is intangible anyway. The greatest benefits in life are intangible. They're not even... You can't mark it. You can't compare it. The joy you feel being with a grandchild, the joy you feel watching your child have a home run or hit a home run in a game, man, that's incredible. And why are we keeping score? It's not fair. At some point, people are going to step on your toes. They're going to do stupid stuff. This isn't a race. This is called life. So if you feel a need to keep score constantly, then guess what? You're going to pay for it. There's going to be problems for you. Another thing we need to let go of are what I call the overs and the unders. Every one of us tends to take extremes in our lives. We either go overboard or under, right? So we play way too hard and excessive in what we do. We play to kill for keeps. We play to dominate. And some of us just don't play. Think about your life. Where are you overboard? Well, I I collect figurines. I have 12,000 of them. Okay, it's a little over. Maybe you're a little overboard on that. Uh, You don't have to be a fanatic to believe in God. You don't have to go overboard or under. Yeah, I don't even go to church. You can actually go to church and just be there. Be there your way. Yeah, but then they'll ask me to pray, and then i got to pray. And Well, you could say no. Overs and unders, we all do it. And sometimes it's over, you know, we're overconfident, uh, and some of us are really underconfident. We lack the confidence we need. Are there certain things that take you to an extreme? Are you doing any activity excessively? Do you, oversch- do you overschedule your life? Do you overcommit to everything? Are you overly exhausted? Or do you, you know, have plenty of energy because you don't ever say yes to anything and you don't ever step out of your comfort zone? We might want to look at that and let go of it. You might want to let go of what's not working. Sometimes in life there's just time to let go of stuff that just isn't working. It's it's how many times do you keep trying to do something over and over and it's just not working? We keep trying it. That could, I mean, I see it a lot with my clients where they just keep trying and trying and trying to do, to have a conversation, even though it's not working. Well, what are we supposed to do? Just not talk? Well, no, but go learn how to make it work. Find another way to do this. There are different ways to try stuff. And with today's technology and today's day and age, if, if the way you keep trying to lose weight isn't working and it hasn't for 30 years, Maybe you've got to let go of that way of losing weight. Maybe it's not about watching your calories. Maybe it's not. Maybe there's another way to skin the cat. I don't know why we're skinning cats, but... It seems gotta... a little cruel to me. Yeah, to you skin, don't have to skin a skin cat, cat to lose weight. You don't. 
but find another way to do it. Just go find something you're passionate about. Well, I really love racquetball, but I, it doesn't help me with my calories. Well, okay, there's, but then go do more racquetball. You know, I don't know. Just we've got to find a different way of doing things that, especially after years of something not working. Another thing we might want to do is get rid of our need to accumulate stuff. Oh, it's just stuff we keep. I kept, and I have no idea why I did it. I kept every script basically for our radio show, every article I read. We, we accumulate about 20, 30 pages of information that we use for this show every day. And I would just staple them all together and put them in a file. I threw them out. Actually, I had, I had Kaylee throw them out. She, broke her, she about, darn near broke her back trying to lift, this, lift these papers. It's crazy. We accumulate stuff like it matters. But then when you look at people like Gandhi – you know, Buddha, Christ, these people were known for what they didn't have. They didn't try to get their identity from their stuff. Maybe we could just throw more stuff out, you know, recycle more, get rid of stuff, declutter. So I challenge you as springs are coming, let's declutter. Get in there and seriously, get rid of a third of your stuff. Well, but I might need it. Have you needed it the last 10 years? Well, no, but I might retire in 10 more years, and then I might need it. Believe me, by the time you retire in 10 years, you won't need it. You'll have an iPhone that does everything for you. Another thing we might let go of is just one bad habit. Think of one bad habit. You might have 50. Ben has 250. And growing. (laughs) And growing. Just get rid of one bad habit. Just one thing. What's one thing you can just figure out how to stop doing today? One thing. Let's just get it off our plate. Oh. One bad habit. Ben, what's your bad habit you're going to get rid of? Caring too much. No, brother. Caring too much? When did that start? That's my defect. That's my only defect. My only weakness. Yeah. Okay, never mind. Don't even worry about it. Never mind. Knew I shouldn't have asked him. Just one bad habit. What's your what's your worst habit? I care too much. So I'm gonna let it go and turn into a horrible evil person. That's one of the great lines. What's your worst um what would you say is your worst habit, uh, as we're about to hire you for this job? My worst habit is I, I try too hard, I work endlessly. You're amazing. I know. You ought to hire me. Anyway, let go of just one bad habit. So there you have it, folks. A few ideas for you. Things we can let go of. Project elimination. Let go of stories that don't serve us. Let go of the need to keep score. Let go of the overs and the unders, the extremes that we take. Let go of what is not working. Let go of the need to accumulate stuff. And let go of one bad habit. Even if that habit is you care too much. More tools, more ideas to help you live longer, love stronger. Stick with us, folks.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Remember the excitement that you felt when you launched headfirst into your latest project? The bliss of knowing every door was open and the opportunities were endless? You know, you felt nothing could stop you. But then, if you're like most people, something stops you. And you don't even make it to the finish line. Let's say you don't even make it halfway through the project. And now you got to look at that project every day as you pull into the house or as you, you know, just are doing your daily duties. So how do you get and keep that momentum? How do you get stuff done when you've hit a wall and you just got to get something done here? Well, joining us this morning is Jason Zook, creator of JasonDoesStuff.com. He's here to talk to us about things that can help us get over that wall and back into the groove of success. Welcome, Jason, to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you for having me, Matt. Good to be here. This is great uh, topic. Every one of us, I think, have probably run into these these walls. You're you're an interesting guy because many people may have seen you on the news or heard about you. You're the one that would basically rent your chest and uh, and wear a T-shirt for somebody to go promote somebody. Yeah, for five years, I wore shirts for over 1,600 brands, made over a million bucks uh, with my company, I Wear Your Shirt. Pretty interesting start. That's a crazy start. So you know how to get stuff done. What What is going on with us when we're so excited about a project and the next thing we know, we totally have no more energy or focus for it? You know, Matt, you said it perfectly. We are all guilty of this. It's not just something that, you know, some something that's wrong with you or something's wrong with your project. It's just human nature that we get so excited and then shiny object and we get derailed <laughs> or we see a big challenge. And again, it's like that wall. You just can't get over it. And so there are just a couple things that I've found over the years getting all these projects done, working with all these companies I've worked with the 10 years in entrepreneurship now. And the first thing is just making really small tactical to-do lists. And so that doesn't mean if you're trying to maybe write a book or, you know, film a movie or whatever you're trying to do, don't put that on your to-do list. Put every step along the way, you know, uh, write the first headline for the first chapter, write the first two sentences of the first chapter, you know, create a bullet point list of all the things you need to do for your book, if that's the example. Mm. But the, the thing about it is that we, we have these daunting tasks that sit in front of us. And if you don't break them down into little manageable bite-sized pieces, you'll never get them done. I've been there and I realized this. And so now I write to-do lists every single day of my life, first thing in the morning, for five minutes, and I just write out every little line item I can do, and that has made the biggest improvement in my life in getting things done. Well, and I guess you get the high of then checking stuff off. I mean, you don't need, oh, to, you don't need to write the book, right? You just need to you know, sit down, get the paper, do whatever you've written on your list, and if you get halfway through your list, you feel good. Exactly. And yeah, you're right. Scratching things off. Like I use a big red Sharpie and it just, I don't know, it feels really good. It's this, this little human psychological trick that just, oh man, I get to cross this thing off. And it, it sounds silly, but I've gotten a lot of stuff done over the years and I've helped a lot of people get a lot of stuff done and it works. <laughs> That's great. It usually is the simplest answer, isn't it? That uh, seems yeah, to do us the most good. Is it, um, and you really get you, you you say very tactical to-do list, literally get every little detail in there. And yep. um, I guess some of that, too, it's like writing an outline, really. You, you, you at least are thinking ahead to the next step, so you don't need to keep figuring it out every time you get interrupted. And it's for everything. I mean, this could be for if you want to get on a new diet, if you want to try and get a new job, if you want to improve something at your current job, if you want to improve your relationship. I mean, I have just found that breaking things down into really small tasks, very bite-sized doable tasks. And it can be done with every one of these things. 
And, you know, like, for example, working out, you know, go put your clothes out the night before for your workout clothes and put your shoes, your socks, your underwear, your shorts, your shirt, your bra if you're a woman, uh, all of your stuff in a pile so that there's no resistance to, oh, I got to go through the drawers and I have to go find it. No, it's all ready for you. Hmm. You know, and then you can just do these things one by one really simply. And there's been a bunch of studies that if you just put your workout clothes on, don't even think about what workout you're going to do. But if you just put them on, you're 75% more likely to actually get a workout done because you've, you've put the workout clothes on. It's so silly, but it works. That's crazy. So, I mean, but it makes sense, right? It's, 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 it's the ability. It's not having to think about it. Whatever we can do yeah. to not have to think about it, I guess it's our mind that stops us so much of the time or our confusion or our interruptions and never getting back to it. But, yeah, if you got your clothes on and your shoes on and your, you know, your, your timer's going on your phone to get running, yeah. something's going to happen. Yeah, and the other thing about that is, you know, I think we have gotten into this society of over-glamorizing and, and glorifying hustling, you know, and working until the late night hours and, and burning the candle at both ends and all these other stupid metaphors about overworking ourselves. And I think pacing is so important to any project as well. You know, we, we don't live in survival mode anymore where we're running from a saber-toothed tiger and you have to get everything done in this last moment or you're going to get eaten. It doesn't happen. Right? Right. We don't have to deal with those things anymore. But yet we'll, we'll kill ourselves, you know, metaphorically, but we'll work so long. We'll put in so many hours. And for what? You know, what are we doing this for? It, whatever project it is you're doing it for. And I think that for me, I've just learned, you know, I used to work 14 and 16 hour days staring at my laptop all day, Matt. And I just I finally just took a step back and said, why am I doing this? Why, you know, th- this isn't the career that I wanted. This isn't what I wanted to be doing in my life. I wanted more free time. A little more time away from a computer or a boss or a job. And so I, I've actually found that taking breaks, and there's actually a really interesting study, and I don't remember who did it or what the name is, but it's actually taking a year and putting it into three-month chunks or four-month chunks. And where you say, like, my year is actually only four months long, what can I get done in that period of time? Hmm. Instead of trying to, like, put it over a longer period of time, it's to make it a little bit shorter and then go, okay, how can I pace myself to get it done in this time and get things done a little bit more tactically, get things done a little bit more organized. And it just it really works. And a lot of people actually found that they got things done a month ahead of where they would have been because they didn't have all this extra time that they could just fill with all the little things that you do to distract yourself. Well, yeah, I mean, the the year maybe doesn't even work in the human evolution or psyche, right? I mean, right? we're used to the yeah. day. We're used to the minute. And, Absolutely. We, and then that concept stretches out our our goals and everything. You must have 500 to-do lists. How do you keep it all straight? You know, I, I don't get, uh, as much as I love writing them every morning, I don't get, uh, you know, sympathetic about them. Uh, as soon as the day is over, I crumple them up, I throw them in the recycle bin, and I bring out a new piece of paper. And I do it on paper every yeah. day. Do you? Um, I, I used to do it in, in journals. Yeah, I just, I really like the feel of a piece of paper that's staring me in the face it doesn't hide within a journal where you can close it and you can like put your to-do list away where it can't be seen. Um, and I don't like apps, you know, on, on the computer, on my phone for to-do list because what happens when you're on your phone or your computer, you get a notification. Oh, an email. I got to go check that. Uh-huh. Oh, someone tweeted Interesting. Yeah. Oh, Facebook notification. And you're gone. You're not in your to-do list anymore. You're not in that mindset, but a piece of paper for me has just been so big. So, you know, you'd think I have like this old, you know, crate full of papers that are dusty. I don't. I throw them away every day. And, and that's actually part of the fun, too, is you can say, all right, I got to rewrite the ones I didn't get done, but I can throw away this other paper and now I move forward. That's great. So you don't use a planner, per se. You don't use uh, you don't use technology apps. You, I mean, you have technology, but don't, you don't use the apps. Yes. You write it on a piece of paper. You hammer out the list. 
um, and then you do it again tomorrow. Yep, absolutely. And I just keep doing it. And, you know, and the other thing, too, here is, is I take breaks. You know, it's not like I just write a to-do list every single day of my life, 365 days a year. You know, I'll go a week without rewriting a to-do list every once in a while, to-do list every once in a while. And I'll also just take time off from my project. And it sounds so counterintuitive, like you said at the beginning, when we feel like we've started this project, we're, we're up against a deadline, we're up against a wall, or, or we're just not even, you know, there's not even a deadline, and we just can't even feel like we're going to get this project finished. I'll just take a break. I'll just take a week off. And actually, that'll help redefine do I want to finish doing this project? Because hmm. if I don't, I should just move on. And I don't think a lot of us have that, that discussion in our minds of, of quitting in a good way, you know, allowing for new things to appear because we're quitting ones we actually don't do. And the other thing a break does is it recharges your creative batteries. Your, it gives you more energy. It gives you kind of more incentive. If you really couldn't stop thinking about that project, okay, now I need to get back at it. You know, now I'm refreshed. Now I need to set a deadline and I need to stick to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and you also, some of the research shows it actually makes you more creative. Having a break from the yeah. ideas that have been filling up your brain, right? Then you can come back and hammer it with new creativity. I don't know anybody who gets, like, constant creativity from being plugged in all the time. Yeah, no. You know, you, you find it in nature. You find it in the shower. You find it when you're away from looking at all the notifications and attention-grabbing things that, that pulled us all day. And listen, I love that stuff. I sit on my technology most of the day just like anybody else. But you have to establish time away from that stuff to be creative and get things done. What do you do for your breaks, like just in your day-to-day break? Yeah, you know, one of the things that I've done for the past six or seven years, every single day at 5 o'clock, I walk my dog with my girlfriend, no technology, and we usually go somewhere where we can be in nature. We, we live close to the beach. We're, we're fortunate to live here in Southern California. And so we walk along the beach about a mile every single day. You hear the waves crashing. You know, you see other people. There's seagulls that are screeching mm. at you. But you're, you're just out in nature. And so, you know, I used to live close to a, a hike, and so every morning I would do hikes for a little while. I just really believe that getting outside, you know, getting some fresh air. I mean, we sit inside all day, whether it's at our offices or in our homes or wherever you are, and you just need to get outside. You need fresh air. You need vitamin D. And I think getting back to nature in some ways really helps, like, rich, for me especially, recharge my creative juices. No, that's great. And and it really, it seems like in the end um, – it's it's also great for your relationship. I mean, to have your girlfriend and be able to build uh, yeah. time in to talk every day. And the neat thing about a walk is you can really only go so far, right? I mean, exactly. and it's and yeah. the time is not going to just keep going on and on and on. You're not going to spend all night walking. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think it's it's finding what works for you. You know, I think a lot of people will say, "Oh, well, I don't live close to the beach, or I don't live near a hike." Yeah, hey, that's totally fine. What can you find that's near you? What can you do that's near you that you and a friend or sitting together or dog or just yourself, you can get out of the house and do something? Because I guarantee you, if the people listening to this, just try this. Maybe establish a 30-day challenge for yourself. And I love 30-day challenges because they're, they're tight and they're easy to do. It's just every day pick something to do to go outside. And just 5, 10, 15 minutes. Like you said, you're not going to walk forever. Yeah. And do that thing every day. And at the end of the month, I would love your listeners to email me and tell me I'm wrong, that they didn't come up with one idea or they didn't solve one problem on those walks or they didn't have one little mini breakthrough because it happens. I see it happen for myself and I see it happen for the people who, you know, read my weekly emails from Jason Does Stuff, as you mentioned, and 
you know, have subscribed to the kind of the mantra of getting things done that I really stand behind. I love it. And and, and movement and finally, and just the health mm-hmm. factors, but also to get some creativity. We're speaking um, right now with Jason Zook, uh, how to get stuff done when you've hit a wall. It's a great article he wrote that's in QZ.com. And um, JasonDoesStuff.com is his website. Jason, hang on. We'll take a break. Come back. And folks, we're going to continue to get more information from Jason about how to move along, how to overcome the wall once you've kind of smashed right into it. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the phone, Jason Zook uh, is known for being the guy that made over a million dollars wearing t-shirts for a living and selling his last name twice. He recently uh, wrote an article, How to Get Stuff Done When You've Hit a Wall, and we are picking his brain um, about uh, his his great lessons there. He also has a great website that um, you can go check out, jasondoesstuff.com. Jason Zook, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome. Good to be back. Thank good, you so much. Good to have you. Now, so you basically have taught us we gotta we gotta you know make smaller uh, kind of tactical lists every day. Make a list, but in detail, so you're not just giving the big highlights like, "Hey, write a book." Um, and then you've also taught us we need to take breaks. What else do we need to do to to overcome the wall when we've hit it and we can't seem to get our projects done? You know, I, I think what we talked about a little bit ago too. It's just to bring it back up is that. We all deal with this. We all have things in our lives that we want to get done, and we just can't seem to get them finished, right? And I, I think it's so important that we realize we're not all supermen and superwomen. And as many things as I've gotten done in my decade of entrepreneurship, I need help. You know, and, and I'm, I'm so prideful, and I don't want to ask for help, Matt, but I've found that sometimes you just need a little nudge. And so there's a couple ways I do that. One is I build a trust circle. And this sounds maybe like a little culty, but it's not, I promise. <laughs> it's just a group of people that you trust, and they're not your friends, they're not your family. There may be colleagues, there may be people that you're connected to, acquaintances, people that you even look up to and whatever your field is, that you can send an email to and just say, hey, if I need a little bit of accountability, can I just email you? <clears throat> Excuse me. Can I just email you? You know, can I just send you something? And so what I've done is I've just built the trust circle over the years, and it changes, you know, year to year when people kind of fall off or they go into other things. Yeah. And I'll just email these people, six to eight people, and I'll just get their feedback on whatever I'm doing. And now I want a huge caveat here, big asterisk. Feedback can be dangerous if it's not coming from the right people. So if you're starting a new business and you email someone and they have no business experience, but yet they give you feedback about business stuff, you need to take that with a grain of salt. So always look one layer deeper on where feedback and criticism is coming from because that can actually derail you from getting something done as well. That's great advice. You know, I think the other thing that can really work too in using a trust circle or not is making a deadline public. Put it out there in the world. Tell the world, put it in the universe and say, I'm going to get this project done, whether it's a Facebook status or on Twitter or you're just emailing some friends or text messaging everyone you know. But put it out there because then people will come out to go, hey, did you get that thing done, Matt? And you go, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> I told people I was going to do this. i got to stick to this deadline. And that really has helped me over the years to say this project launches on this date. And people will sit there. They'll want to know when that thing is going live. They'll want to know what it is. They'll want to know how they can support it and support you. That works really well. I love that. I did that with my uh, dissertation and my my doctorate. And 
it does help because then everybody's asking you and all of a sudden yep. you have accountability. And at least in yeah. my, it felt like my character was now in question. It does. It gives you, you know, a little bit of like an integrity check, yeah. right? Because if you don't put it out there, then no one can really say like, oh, you know, Matt doesn't get things done. But if you put it out there and you don't get it done, people be like, hmm, hey, Matt, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. You know, let's dive a little deeper. Why didn't we get this thing you done? You liar. And, you yeah. never do what you say you're going to do. You led us astray. Exactly. But I really believe I, be, I believe this can be really powerful. And, and I'll give uh, your, your listeners one other super tactical thing is I like to write myself future letters of encouragement. Hmm. Now, what does this mean? This sounds really weird. Um, I use a tool called followup.cc. It's totally free. That's the website. It's followup.cc. And what you can do is you can send yourself emails in the future. You can use it for lots of other things, but... So I'll send myself an email, and I'll just say, like, one month at followup.cc, and I'll just write in that email very simply, Jason, you got this. Get it done. How are your to-do list doing? What do you need help with? And I'll, I'll shoot that email off. Well, guess what? One month later, an email will appear in my inbox, and it'll say exactly that message. Now, you think about that right now, and you're like, oh, that's silly. I don't need that right now. I'm working. I'm getting things done. Yeah, but what happens when you get to that wall and this email shows up? It's like, whoa, hey, who's this coach that just emailed me? It's you. Yeah. You wrote this ahead of time. So I do this sometimes for myself on like a two-week, four-week, you know, two-month basis. And it's just a simple little thing, but it's a reminder. It's a nudge for you to keep going. Well, and proactive. And it. I mean, you don't have to write, dear diary. It doesn't have to be a huge thing. Just a few words of remember our goal. Remember the motivation. Why are we doing this? That's cool. Yes. And Boomerang's yeah, and like another tool, tool, right? You can you can use yeah. Boomerang. Yeah, Boomerang is for Gmail. Follow up CC will work with anything. But Great. I really like what you said there. You know, bring back the why that you're doing it. Because so many times when we get stuck on projects, I think it's because we lose our vision for why we're doing something, who it's going to impact, how it's going to help people, how it's going to help ourselves and our family and maybe our businesses. And so I think if you can bring that why back up in many different ways, whether it's with a trust circle, whether it's with social media accountability, or whether it's with a tool like Follow-Up CC, it can be really helpful for you to get that motivation again that you had when you first had the idea for whatever you want to do. Yeah. Now, I mean, what if, what if as you look at this, Jason, like with me, I the last 10% is hard. So when I read that, I'm like, yeah, it's like... I can let me get the big ideas, let me get the kind of middle sized ideas. But when we get into the minutiae, for example, of finishing a book, maybe it's better mm-hmm. then to just hand it off, you know, or yeah, to know, get it to someone yeah. else that can just, that is the finisher that, you know, can make it look pretty. You know, I have this little mantra for myself, and it's just outsource your weaknesses. And I, I've told it to myself years over years, and it's just, I find myself trying to do all these things that I'm not very good at and that someone else could do for a very nominal fee. Yeah. Or just a favor. You know, you might even know somebody in your sphere who is an editor or a copy editor. If we're talking specifically about a book, but maybe you also know someone who's a trainer. If you want to get back in shape or a nutritionist, you know, you'd be surprised at who's in your immediate kind of circle. And so I think if you can reach out to other people and lean on other people to help you with different parts of a project where you're really getting hung up, it can be so impactful and so helpful for you to get to that finish line. And like you said, you're at 90%. You're so close, but you just need someone else to help you get over these things that are really challenging for you. That last 10%, other people can really help you do that. Yeah. I mean, and I guess that's knowing yourself, right? Just know, know what you're good at. And it sounds like that's what, one of the things that you've become really good at, Jason, is you got to be real. Quit being delusional about what you really can do. 
Yeah, a little bit of self-awareness can go a long way in finishing stuff. And I, listen, I was a prideful guy a couple years ago. I didn't want anyone's help on anything. I was going to do it all. And what I realized is that just led me to being overweight, overstressed, unhappy, and not enjoying the work that I was doing. And now what I just try and do is, again, as we talk about these to-do lists that I mentioned very early on in this, is I'll write down all this stuff. Oh, you know what? I have all these little things. I don't want to do this. This is not my specialty. This is not what I'm good at. But I know people who can do this for either free or a favor or just really cheap. And then I can get that off my plate and I don't even have to think about it. It just gets done and I move forward. Yeah. What do you do, you do to um, – because these are great ideas for like me. How do I get others to, to take this advice? Uh, you sit them down and you have an intervention. No. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. It's like a husband or a wife, a wife that saw her husband started a project and he just yeah. never finishes the project. You know, I think there's some real tricky stuff when it comes to relationships and, and kind of work and projects. And I think you just have to be as supportive as possible. I, I know with my girlfriend, you know, we are just very honest and we over communicate. You know, we really talk about you. We mentioned we go on these daily walks and these daily walks for us are really our time to kind of vent and, hey, what's wrong? What's going on? You know, what could be better? And we try and figure out a way to support each other first and know that, hey, our relationship is the most important thing and these projects are secondary. And that really helps just to reframe it. You know, when you can say this project is not the, the make or break thing, our, our relationship is the make or break thing. And so if you have a significant other who you constantly see starting a project and never finishing it, you know, maybe sit them down and just say, hey, I just want to be here to help you. What's going on? You know, how, how could I help you? Is there anything I could, you know, jump in with on this project? Or right. Is there anybody we could talk to? And it does get a little bit tricky, but, you know, even if it's not a significant other, even if it's just a friend, you don't want to go at them with the, oh, you never get anything done. Because guess what's going to happen? They're going to resent you. And then they're not going to want your help or your feedback. You have to be supportive first. That's so true. Isn't that, I mean, it just seems pretty basic, doesn't it? It's, it uh, does, but I think, it's, I think we lose track of all the basic stuff with yeah. everything else that gets thrown at us in life. And, you know, I know I've needed reminders so many times. I appreciate this opportunity to be on your platform to give people the reminders that I've just kind of fallen into. And I think you bring up a lot of good points as well to this, that it's just going back to a lot of the roots of the simple stuff, but the simple stuff really works. Yeah. Well, and I guess that's why, you know, it's been around for generations. It just works. Before all this technology and all of these other opportunities we have, uh, you know, a to-do list has existed forever. Yeah. Even yeah. in our head. That's right? in stone. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, uh, yeah, I think it's just really important to get back to the basics, but also find what works for you. You know, I, I want to make sure I bring that point up yeah. because I don't want people to think the way that I do things is the way that it has to be done. Listen, if you can use an app on your phone or whatever and you can really get a lot of stuff done, then own that. You know, use that thing. That is a, that is a tool that is really helping you. But remember that all of these things are just tools. And right. there will be new tools. There will be other things to look at. Don't get caught up in the tool. Get caught up in focusing on how to get things done. Yeah. Jason Zook, we appreciate you. Thank you so much for your insight. And again, uh, we've been challenged by you, Jason, to do the 30-day challenge. Go outside for 10 to 15 minutes. And if, if it doesn't start creating creativity for you, you want to hear about it. I do. I want people to send me an email and be angry and tell me that it didn't work, but I have a feeling I'm not going to get many of those emails. <laughs> and where would they email you? They go, just go to jasondoesstuff.com and they can connect with you? Yeah, that would be great. It's great. Great stuff. Jason Zook, thanks so much. Thank you, Matt. Have a great walk today on the beach. Uh, thank you so much. I will. I wish I were there. Um, good stuff. Uh, isn't that fun? I mean, really, that's the, you hear the energy in Jason's life, actually, and uh, the creativity well, yeah, but he's got an easy life on the beach with a dog and a girlfriend. Um, 
He created that life. That's how this works, folks. We create that life. You create it right now. The life you're driving in and going to and working at, this life that you've created, it's yours. It's mine. We are all what we are. And, you know, some have been, I guess, blessed or given certain opportunities, some different opportunities. But in the end, I think what Jason's telling us is there's a choice to make. And uh, let's just start this morning or let's start today with a to-do list. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you live longer and hopefully get over the wall. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Hey, uh, what do you think? Did you figure it out? Do you now know how to get over that wall that just has been plaguing you for years? Well, we're just not wall people. (laughs) We can make up whatever story you need to make up to get over the wall. The problem is it's your wall. Some of us, instead of getting over the wall, we just, you know, build a really nice lattice that we secure to the wall, and then we create really nice, you know, shrubs around the wall. We paint the wall. We maybe draw a really nice painting and picture on it so we can enjoy the wall more. Maybe you just ought to get over the wall. Now, believe me, there's many things I just have trouble getting over. And yet, as I listen to Jason, you're like, well, duh, make a list. And doesn't does it not make sense to make the list? And make it detailed. If, if on the list I today put, write the first chapter of my book. I have four books that are in my head. I've even white papered them. That's how, that's how far I've gotten is I've actually written complete outlines on four different books. <laughs> Haven't written them yet. I've written one book. And the problem is that book, that wall shredded me. So I am like, I am never going to go write another book. But I have some great white papers if you want to read them. But then I have this thing in my head and my heart that keeps saying, hey, Matt, you got to write this book. Or I'll go do a speech and they'll all say, tell us more about that body, mind, spirit idea. Well, it's going to be in my upcoming book. When will that be out? At this rate, 2060, if we're lucky. I mean, I got this wall. I've got to get over it. And I'm you. You're me. We're the same people. We've all got something. But make the list. That just makes sense, doesn't it? And then be willing to just toss the list tonight. Okay, I'm done. Didn't get it all done. But I did get my computer set up and I did uh, tighten up that the white paper on my book. I, t- I, t- I tightened up my outline. Great. Tomorrow, let's just start writing it. Okay, what do I need to do to write it? Make some time, create the space, sit down, lock my door to my office, offend everyone in the office so they don't come near me. Make the list. And take a break. Um, How essential is the break idea? Now, some of us just maybe take too many breaks, like watching Netflix. Terry, on the other hand, just watches... Marvel comics, DC comics, 
and trailers for all the shows coming out. There's more to life than that. It, it, take the break, whatever break you need. It doesn't matter. Just take it. What am I supposed to do, Matt? What am I supposed to do when my husband, that's all he does is take breaks. Well, let's see. Let's look at our options. Uh, complain. Um, ignore. Avoid. Talk about him. Uh, make him pay for it. Or you could relate. You could talk. You could communicate. Well, I do, but every time I talk to him about it, he gets mad. Okay? That's common. Uh, every time I have projects that my wife needs done and I don't do them, and then she brings it up, like, are you going to do the yard soon? Oh. Who I'm usually mad at, by the way, when I get mad at you for bringing up the projects I need to do. I'm really mad at myself, aren't I? I'm mad at me, and yet I, I blame you. It's, it's a neat thing we do. But I'm mad because you're telling me something I know I should be doing. And yet I'm, I'm caught on the wall. Or I'm watching Netflix on the other side of the wall, and I don't even realize I'm no longer trying to get over the wall. I've just now accommodated the wall. Made excuses about the wall. One of my rules when I teach and work with couples is just do something different. Just do something different. It's If your spouse is going to be mad either way, then maybe just go out and start doing the yard. And he'll come out mad. I guarantee you he'll come out mad. But remember who he's mad at is uh, he's mad at himself. Well, I don't want to make him mad. You're already making him mad by asking him every day. He's already mad when he pulls in the yard and the driveway and he sees that his yard is not as nice as everyone else's grass. It's not cut. It's not green. The yard's a mess. He already feels that way, which might be one of the reasons he gets in the funk. So you, if talking's not working, then just quietly go start working on it. Oh, well, why should I have to work on it? Because it bothers you. Go work on what bothers you. Well, aren't we just enabling him? Well, then nag him and see how that goes. You got to choose somewhere, right? Nag or we're going to work on it. I mean, remember, it's your life too. And if your wall is your husband not getting over his wall, then do something to get over the wall. Right? Adjust. Oh, it's always up to me. It is. Yeah, it is. As long as it's bothering you, it's always up to you. As long as you want to improve it, it's always up to you. As long as you're the one that wants to change, it's always up to you. Anyway, a little coach's corner for you. What do I know? Just one of us. We're all jacked up. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We're doing what we can every day to give us all the tools we need. Not just you. We all need them. I talk from my experience being stuck on the wall. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. With uh, President Obama's town hall meeting on gun safety, it just kind of shows us again how difficult it is to create uh, a, a really open conversation on such a polarized topic as guns. So I wanted to talk about how we can learn to persuade people, how we can influence others, um, and get people to believe in your cause without 
polarizing it because you you can't have a gun a discussion about guns it seems like without it moving very quickly to the extremes as it does on so many other issues in our culture in our world um for example on terrorism and and the discussions of and war and going you know to Iraq and um and abortion but but in the, in the end, we, we look at the politicians. They're extreme. They're going to be extreme. They have to be extreme. They're, they have to placate and, and do what they've got to do to, their, to get elected. But we don't, right? So we, we are the people that are eventually going to elect these politicians and eventually are going to actually create the change like State Senator Todd Weiler we just talked to. Um, here's, here's my view. The power is is really in our hands to change these debates, these discussions. Um, we can change them in our local, you know, meetings on the local level, but we can also just change them in our conversations around the dinner table. So there's power and in and an ability for each of us to persuade people to be more open minded. But you gotta you gotta kind of follow some principles. I wouldn't just say like Trump did, you know, Hillary. If she believes that guns are so dangerous, then her security team needs to lose all their guns. Okay, that, I mean, it's a great point, Don. You, you nailed it. Donald Trump said that. The same is also true. If guns are so safe, Donald, then everybody in your meetings and rallies should have their guns by their side. Now, can you imagine a three, ten, or three to 10,000 person rally with Donald Trump with 10,000 guns in the room? See, that's just ludicrous. It's crazy because we can't trust the few. There's just a few in the room that can't be trusted. And there's just a few in the room that the security guards around Hillary Clinton are protecting Hillary from. So if you notice, we're not fighting an argument of everyone. We're fighting an argument of just the few. But those are the things we're not talking about. We're not talking about just those few. And we're always trying to protect our rights. So listen, here's some principles for how to persuade other people to believe in more in what in your cause. First, you got to know what you believe. Know what you believe, but don't just know what you believe because you know you you've got the talking points from um, you know the NRA or from you know the Democratic anti-gun movement. Know what you believe truly. What are the principles, for example, that of why you want to have a gun in your home? Is it safety? What else is it? Is it is it hobby to go hunting? Is it collection? You have so many different reasons. But why do you believe in what you believe? What are your principles for why you believe in pro-life or pro-choice? Understand your beliefs. And don't just understand them because somebody talked to you about them. I, for example, um, I, I was very pro-death penalty for a long time. And now I'm just kind of – I'm neutral. <laughs> I've moved to neutral by simply reading and studying more about how many innocent people are also being killed. And, you know, it scares me that we could make mistakes on the death penalty. And it's moved me back to center um, when I may have been more extreme in one way or another. But it came because I really dug deep to find out is that something I actually believe or is that just one of the things that my party believes? Right. So know what you believe. And before you try to convince everyone else of something, be informed and know what you believe. And please get more informed than just the local media. Right. Or the national media 
or just this one position. Understand both positions of the argument. Another thing you could do is show passion, not obsession. Nothing on earth is a better attractor than someone that's passionate. But also nothing is a greater repellent than a person that is an obsessed, that's obsessed. So the guy that has to show up at a parade with, a, with an automatic rifle because he can, that's obsessive. That's not healthy. And it's, it's also not respectful to others. You can – if your obsession crushes everyone else's respect of others, then you're in trouble. You can be passionate about your guns and highly informed, but you don't need to become extreme. Moderation. Moderation in all things. The next rule is be the billboard. What I mean by that is very simply, we are always the best demonstration of what we believe in. We always are the the one. We're the demonstrator. We're the best model. We're the best billboard of what we believe in. So if you want to influence people, then be the billboard. And the interesting thing about like billboard marketing is it's really about putting it up there and you want to keep your billboard up for a while or a long time because it's repetition, repetition, repetition. When people see that you're an open-minded person and informed about your views and able to hear other people's views, that billboard shows that you're trustworthy on this topic. If you could start showing that you're open-minded to hearing everyone else's opinion, which to me that town hall started to do for the president, I think, and it's why I think it would be powerful for the NRA to show that they're open-minded to hearing as well. Um, then we could have some powerful discussions. But we are always the billboard. So if you really want to influence another human, be open to what others are saying. And then last but not least, to persuasion, always think about the people, not the persuasion. The people are what matters. And in the end, it's going to be the people that will make the decisions. It will be the people that will – will facilitate and and make it easier for you to to have the you know your goals achieved or it will be the people that will fight against it. We have so many people in our culture in our country today fighting um each other because no one's talking or thinking about the actual people involved. They're just trying to get their point across. Uh when you hear a story like we heard earlier in the show of a a a girl shooting accidentally her sister to death with her father's shotgun that he left out after a hunt, that's a people story. That should move you. That should actually at least make your heart open up a little bit. And you shouldn't just shut that down just so you can go back to your point. Yeah, but he should still have the right to have a gun. Sure, he should. We don't have to be pro-gun or anti-gun. We can be both. It's just the situation and how it impacts the people. Persuasion, folks. Think of people, not persuasion. Be the billboard. Show passion, not obsession. And truly know what you believe. That's how you influence people. Not just arguing louder or threatening them with, you know, repercussions. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. One of my favorite books ever. Hardest book to read I've ever experienced. Like, literally, I would read a page a day. But it was by Martin Buber. Um who was uh, a philosopher, and the book is called I and Thou. It was first published in 1923, but it reminds me of um, the power of a relationship. And he, in the book, uh, Martin Buber teaches that there's, there's two ways to kind of orient yourself to other people, as an I-it 
meaning I, I'm the I, and you are an it, an object, separate from me. Or I can orient towards you as an I, thou. And a thou meaning I'm in a relationship with you that um, that is, is sacred. That's the thou, right? So that's the terminology you'd use to address a god in your prayer, perhaps. So when we think about how we deal with the people around us, do you look at people as an it, as a Republican or a Democrat, as a male or a female, as a, a Muslim, a Mormon, a Catholic, a Jew? How do you orient to people? Do you orient by their color? Do you orient by their degree? And uh, Martin Buber talks about the fact that eventually our healthiest relationships are where we see people as a thou, an I-thou relationship where I revere you, I respect you. And if I, if I see you as a thou, then there's something holy about you. Uh, Emerson used to teach that there's a divine spark inside of each one of us. And that divine spark has to be honored. It has to be upheld. Which means I've got to be careful how I talk about you, right? I've got to be careful what I say or I don't say. I need to be willing to listen to what you are saying because you are special. You're not just a thing or an it, which is why our labels in our world are its so uh, possibly devastating because the minute I've labeled you, you become an it for me. Even, by the way, with our children, we can make our children an it, an object, because they're our children, right? That's my daughter, and I could end up seeing her as an it instead of a thou. So it's just powerful to start realizing that between each one of us, there's a relationship. And how I look at you depends on how, in the end, I will treat you. And wouldn't it be powerful if we could see the divine spark in everyone around us? How would that change the dialogue of our candidates? How would it change the dialogue in our families if we could just see that there's a divinity inside of each and every one of us. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Leadership experts, as they're studying leadership, they're they're now talking about the need for radical inclusion. We need more and more ideas. We need to allow more people in on the conversation, maybe draw bigger circles so that we can we can kind of all fit in this together. Um, I I've been uh seeing this same kind of movement going on where I always I always I don't know what I if it's a joke but I'm always saying you know we're one we're one disaster away from a, a very big problem we're one disaster away from totally needing each other right and we see that when we have a kind of a local tragedy or uh, even when you just see someone in your neighborhood that's uh, been diagnosed with cancer People gather around and and they take care of it. In an address um, at the Vatican recently, uh, Pope Francis – this was uh, I think about maybe within the last year – Pope Francis spoke out strongly against what he called the terrorism of gossip. And gossip to me is the opposite of that coming together, that that, – you know, belonging sense that we feel when we are together uh, fighting for the same cause. Gossip, I think, is something that actually tears us away from that. And so one of the things I wanted to focus on in our Coach's Corner today is talking about how we can we can really learn to love our neighbor, 
lose some of those little habits, the techniques we have of pushing our neighbors away, and one of those would be to to kind of lose the gossip. Let's let's set a goal, all of us, following the you know the admonition of Pope Francis about the the gossip, the terrorism of gossip, and learn to control our tongues. Uh, maybe what we could do is just simply, especially with our own kids, our own family, say that we we're going to do whatever we can. To, uh, to eliminate gossip from our house. We won't talk about other people in negative light. We instead will, as our last guest taught us, amplify, uh, amplify the positive, amplify the things that we see that are good out in the world. And maybe part of what we could do is try to actually just start to have conversations around the dinner table, conversations around home about the positive things that we saw. What were the good things we saw people do today? And ask, ask our kids to share those examples. In fact, more importantly, ask them to be those examples. Wouldn't it be interesting if we were all would go home every day and talk with our spouse and our kids about the good things that happened today and the people that influenced your life for good today? I wonder, I wonder if your name would be mentioned by the people around you. Would, would your acts today be so impactful that you would make their list of people that that made a difference, of people that really, truly um, have have helped. So that's one idea. Another idea is we, we can learn to humanize the people around us also. We don't have to demonize everybody. Everybody doesn't have to be the spawn of darkness, slowly trying to destroy your life. Sometimes people just drive slow. Sometimes they just cut in front of you. Sometimes people just... You know, they're humans. And if we could actually start to see people more as humans, and one way to do this um, is just, you know, think about why you would do a similar thing. Well, I would never pull in front of somebody. I always check my mirror. Yeah, except for that time you didn't, right? And then you did pull in front of someone. And so if I followed you long enough, I call it the Ken Starr defense. You remember Ken Starr was investigating uh the uh, the white water and all of the President Clinton, you know, stuff. And uh, as he was investigating, if, you know, if I put millions and millions of dollars behind an investigation team to follow you for a year, what would we find? And I'm going to bet we'd find some problems. You know, you're kind of a bad neighbor. Sometimes you drive on their sprinkler accidentally as you're pulling your car out backwards. Be careful to, to uh, demonize somebody. And the only reason we do it is because it's easy. But the minute we are demonizing everybody around us, we, we really are tightening in the circle, and it's going to cause and create even more problems for us. Another um, idea is to literally lift your neighbor like you lift yourself. We're really good at writing great stories about how we live, how we work, how blessed we are, how gifted, how we've touched the hand of God kind of thing that— Sure, our talents are incredible. We're really good at that. And then we kind of lower everyone else's story. One of the things we might want to start doing is lifting stories. Build better stories about other people. Hold up what they do really well. Share more stories about the good of others. And and literally help them write a better story. You might even know people that are really they're they're very adept and skilled at at not telling very good stories about themselves. And they need more help. They need, they need to know how to do it. They need better examples of better stories. So nothing is more powerful than when you're talking to somebody and you highlight what's great about them. Sometimes they look at you like, are you seriously being this positive about me? 
<laughs> they can't believe it. So, uh, I, you know, it's it's not easy, but build those stories up. There's nothing better, I think, than hearing something positive about you from somebody that heard it from someone else. You know? That means it's getting out there. People think you're great. So be loyal to those people that aren't around you and be positive and, and lift them up. And, uh, and I think if we do that, we, we end up lifting everybody up. One other little tool I would just suggest uh, to hopefully create a, a more lifting neighbor kind of relationship is eliminate the middleman. Quit taking your grievances to someone else. Let's start going directly to the person. And it might simply be our fear that we don't know how to do it. We don't know how to do it without causing a scene. We don't know how they will respond. But instead of being more passive-aggressive, why don't we just be a neighbor? Instead of gossiping to air our grievances, why don't we just go talk to the person and find out what's going on? And uh, don't even just get mean about it. I know people that set up garbage cans in front of their house because they don't want anyone to park in front of their house. And, okay, fine, fine. But can we, let's just talk about it. Let's just talk. It's, it's, it's an old thing we used to do before all this technology came around. We used to just kind of talk to each other. That's the Coach's Corner. More ideas, more tools to help you find the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. How easy it would be to show me how you feel more than words. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, have you ever tried to get out of a sticky situation by saying what you think another person wants to hear, only to have your words come out as sarcastic or condescending? Uh, and then you just end up digging yourself deeper into a hole. On the other end, have you ever given someone critiques or criticism or feedback using positive tones and had them actually accept it openly or optimistically? Well, you know, it might be time that we learn how to talk. And especially in our marriages, our, our most important relationships, we probably need to figure out how tone and uh, and just our pitch maybe sometimes impacts how our words are being picked up and how they're being related. Who better to teach us uh, than um, our great guest, Leslie uh, Maury, uh, Dories, sorry, and she is the author of the book Blueprint for Lasting Marriage, How to Create Your Happily Ever After with More Intention and Less Work. She's here to walk us through some of the details of our uh, communication with our spouse. Leslie, welcome to The Matt Townsend Show. Well, thank you for having me. Great to great to have you on this topic as well. I love communication and relationship topics. So it, it, in, in the end, it's something I don't think we pay attention to, uh, the tone of how we say something, the pitch we use. It may play a lot uh, more important role than most of us understand. Well, yeah, research actually shows that. The words we, the actual words we use usually is mo- no more than 10 or 15 percent of what gets communicated. The other 85 to 90 percent is our tone, our body language, our facial expressions, 
And, you know, it really creates a sense of meaning. So if somebody says, well, how are you doing? And you go, hey, I'm fine. That's one thing. And if you, but if you hear, well, how's it going? Or how are you? Fine. Yeah. Okay. Fine. So the word is exactly right. the same, but the meaning is completely different. Right. And we know, I mean, the, the tone is there for the exact purpose of creating better communication, right? It's there to convey the message almost in a deeper way. Yes, and I don't think people realize right. that. Yeah. And, you know, and a lot of times if they realize that, they might want to stop and think, Is the does the tone match the message that I'm trying to say, which sometimes it does, but then the next question people have to ask, which they don't, is, is this going to get me what I want? Right. <laughs> which is an entirely different thing. Yeah. Is, is it just the tone is harder to manage? Is it... Why is it we don't pay as much attention to it as what, what we're saying? I mean, a lot of us don't even pay attention to what we say, right? But it seems like even the tone is even a – that's even a whole other game. Well, it is, and it's actually a much more natural game. I mean, actors spend years practicing their craft to make sure that their facial expression, their tone, their words match. Most of us don't ever go through acting classes or anything. And so what we actually really feel is right there, at, you know, is, is really accessible, and then that's what comes out despite what the actual words we use hmm. are. And we've had that. We've asked somebody, is something wrong? And they're like, no, I'm fine. Right. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, okay, something's not, it, and, and it, it conveys it, right? It, it's so we should really probably trust the tone more than the words. Absolutely. Ooh, that's scary. Time. It's, a, it's actually best when they match, but it's sort of like the idea of, um, it's the truth is what somebody's actions are. You know, pay attention more to their actions than, than their words. Mm-hmm. And the same thing is true with tone. Pay more attention to the tone than the actual words they're using. Yeah, you'd have to be a really skilled person to get the tone right in a lie or, a, you know, but it's the words. Okay, I'll give you the words. Is, is this something we can fix and change? And, and if so, what, how do we know? How do we know how to handle the tone and what makes the best tone for whatever type of communication? Well, the, the simple answer is yes, we can fix this. But it's not an easy thing to do because what happens a lot of times is we don't think we are speaking in a tone or better yet, we aren't intending to speak in that tone, but somebody else perceives it that way. And then we get into an argument of, well, you, you, know, you have a tone. No, yeah. I don't. Yes, don't use that no, tone I, with me. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Right. And, it's really, and it's really interesting. Any parent of a teenager has run into this because there's something that happens to the, to the brain when people enter puberty. It gets rewired, and a lot of the pathways that we don't need are actually kind of – they actually go away. But so the, the brain of a – teenager is very, very volatile. And so they will hear a disappointed tone Mm -hmm. as yelling. I can't tell you, I mean, I've talked to my sisters, my friends, everybody who's had a teenager, I experienced it where you'll be unhappy with something 
uh, your child did, and they'll say, stop yelling at me. But <laughs> my volume hasn't raised, but that's how they hear it. Yeah. And so, we, so getting into an argument, I'm not yelling, is not productive. It's, oh, okay, this is actually what they're hearing. Is there a way for me to step back and think about a different way of saying what I want to say in a way that the person I'm talking to can't hear and accept. Well, and and that uh, teen teenagers aside, men, I I feel that a lot. So if my wife asks me a question like, um, "So when are you going to mow the lawn?" Um, I might hear that's just a question. It might even be with a beautiful tone, but it's in my head. I think, "Oh my word, are you going to keep nagging me about this?" And all of a sudden, I'm interpreting it as a nag when it's a question, and and yet. So it might just be we we almost set it up in a competitive nature, don't we? Well, yes. Sometimes we're pre-programmed either because of the interaction, past interactions we've had with this particular person or past interactions we've had with somebody completely different. Yeah. But they use the same words and we hear a different meaning than what the person standing right in front of us is trying to convey. Yeah, that's huge. Okay, so we've got to work on this. How do we um, – let, let's do this, actually. Let's take a break and come back, and then I want you to, de- to describe how we adjust our tone, how we – what are some little tricks we can do to, to make sure that the tone is, is the right tone and, um, and, and maybe get some of those messages to slip through without the traditional problems. We'll take a break, uh, folks, and continue this discussion about your marriage communication on the tough issues – Leslie Dorries will be joining us and uh, rejoining us and talking to us about that and some of her secrets from her book, Blueprint for a Lasting Marriage. Stick with us, folks, uh, learning all we can to make marriage better. We'll be right back. Friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. If you ever feel like uh, you're losing your message, it's maybe lost in translation as you're communicating with somebody you love. Um, it might be your tone, folks. It might be the pitch you're using. Sometimes it might just be the pauses you're taking. So joining us is Leslie Dorries, uh, who is a family counselor, marriage therapist as well, also author of the book Blueprint for a Lasting Marriage, How to Create Your Happily Ever After with More Intention, and less work. And she's here to talk to us about um, our tone. And she's been filling us in already all about it. Leslie, welcome back. Thanks for joining us again. Absolutely. What do you think? So what are the what are the tones we need to watch out for? Oh, um, frustration, aggravation, anger, yeah. <laughs> sarcasm, and, you know, anything that really that when you're spoken to in a certain way, you don't like it, we really need to be aware that most other people probably don't either. Right. Yeah. And I mean, and sometimes if if you're already being, you know, emotionally hijacked, I call it, then you'll just take a lot of times that emotion right into the your question or your statement, and that ends up creating the tone. Absolutely. And that's really where we all need to do the work. Um, interestingly enough, we will be aware 
of how we speak to complete strangers in a way that we aren't always aware of how we speak to our life partner. Mm. And usually the life part, the way we talk to our life partner comes out on the short end of the stick. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And I guess what is that is we, we know we have different rules. We're more careful of allowing too much emotion into a, an outsider relationship. Yes. And even a lot of times when we talk to our kids, there was, I'm going to date myself here, there was a, back in the 1980s, there was a huge public service campaign about how we speak to our children. Um, The words that we use, the message we convey, you know, it's not you're stupid or you're bad. It's I don't like what you just did. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm thinking we need a public service announcement for how to talk to our spouses and Mm -hmm. those who we claim to love because there is a certain level of we let our we let ourselves we we, it's not even letting our guard down but we let ourselves become more relaxed but we but then we lose what the impact is on the person that we care about Hmm. yeah and i mean i guess even being less relaxed about it just like kind of taking it more seriously that is a really strong statement about how much you care you care so much you're going to focus on it. Right. I'm going to care enough that I'm going to get myself under control before I open my mouth because it's what you've said. When we're flooded with emotion, our rational thought goes right out the window. Right, exactly. <laughs> so we have to take that moment and go, okay, let's bring my rational thought back in and decide how do I want to proceed with this. Mm. What, what, it's what, a step that we don't take all the time. Right. What, what are some tones we, we could be practicing that we could be improving, and how do we, how do we get that tone right? Um, well, one, it's really thinking about what do I want to accomplish by the statement I'm about to make. If I'm, now, if I'm trying to hurt or anger the other person, great you know, let it fly. Mm. But if what I really want to do is to convey my hurt or convey what matters to me, then I have to look at the way that message is being presented. It's basically what advertising does. They go after who their target market is, and then they put their message around that. Yeah. So it's really knowing your audience. I mean, and knowing your message and then, um, I guess, getting yourself aligned to that. Are there any tricks that help me? Let's say I want to create, like, let's say I have to go talk to my spouse or give some feedback or some criticism or, you know, critique of something. How do I do that in a way that the tone comes out right? One, you have to figure out what your goal is. Is your goal really to help the other person? Or is, you know, that hey, you know, I've noticed that, you know, when you're interacting with the kids, you know, here's here's something that I see, you know, that maybe isn't working really well, you know, but you have to idea, is this really about helping them or is it I just disagree with what you're doing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Do it differently. Because one is really, it's about your intention. What am I trying to accomplish? And then the other thing that we don't do which is absolutely critical, especially if we're going to make any kind of critique or correction, is to first off ask if now's a good time to talk to the person, because they may Mm -hmm. be busy and their thoughts may be elsewhere. And number two, asking, are you interested in an observation 
that I have about this. Yeah. Because they might because say, a lot, no, I'm not. <laughs> Next. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Because it sets, you know, because one, a lot of times we start a conversation and the other person's, their, their head is somewhere completely different. They're not knowing it's coming. And especially if it's a criticism or a critique, it's, whoa, <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm not ready for this. And good coaches know that if I preface something with a positive statement and then I bring in the correction, number one, I've set a much better tone. So it's like, yeah, that last play, you did this really well. Next time, let's try, let's try adding this to it. Yeah, there you go. And, and it well, really, I'm open to that. And what's interesting, because we always hear that as a technique, right? Like kind of uh, sandwich the, the criticism. But what you're, what it, you, you made a great point saying, no, the positive side isn't to manipulate and then lower the boom. The positive thing you're saying is to set the tone that I'm in. I love you. I care. And let's just add this next time. Right. Yeah. And- that's great. You know, and, and, of course, that whatever positive comment you make has to be true because right. otherwise then the other person's go, okay, yeah, here comes the manipulation. You know? Yeah, it's just a technique, isn't it? Um, we've only got about a minute left, uh, Leslie. What would you say is the one thing, the one thing that we should all remember when it comes to managing tone? Really? It's what is your intention with what you're about to say, and does your tone match that intention? Great. Because what, what is the intention would set how this is going to come out anyway, and, and or you might just be having tone that doesn't jive or match with what your goal was. Exactly. Hmm. Great questions. What is my intention, and does it match with how it came out? Well, Leslie, we appreciate you and your great work there. Um, if you go, you have a great website, leslieduarez.com, which is D-O-A-L-E-S-L-I-D-O-A-R-E-S.com. Wonderful resources and tools there. Uh, I highly suggest all of us. We need to get working on these subtle little differences of tone, of relationship, of communication. You're going to learn them one way or another, and you're going to have problems one way or another. So, Leslie, thank you so much. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Did you know that there was so much research on the spiritual benefits um, and the health benefits of spirituality? So I see it all the time with my clients. They come in and uh, I, I teach a... I teach a basic concept of body, mind, spirit, that everything we do, we are going to either have to orient from our body, our mind, or the way we think, or our spirit. Our spirit, I teach, basically knows peace. The example I always give, um, like adults, about the spirit is when you're holding your baby, you're in the middle of the night, you're not, you know, thinking he's going to be president or anything. You're just calm. You're rocking your baby to sleep. And you just feel love and peace and just you just feel joy, right? To me, that's the power of the spirit. Spirit uh, is, and, and again, and she described it so beautifully, Dr. Lisa Miller did, spirit is, is the essential form of who we all are. 
And every major religion is basically going to understand that there's some spiritual part of us. That spirit's always operating. I believe it's inside of each of us. Then we all have minds and we have bodies. The mind, so the spirit brings the peace. The mind wants to be popular. The mind wants to be pretty. The mind is the identity we've all set up for ourselves. So we come to this earth, and when you sit there and you look at that cute baby, and that baby's, you know, two months old or five months old or ten months old, and you're like, oh, you're so beautiful. Look at your eyes. You're so smart. You're the smartest baby. Oh, you throw that ball so hard. All of those different things start to create an identity for this child. And eventually that child is going to think that it is all of these things, blue-eyed, blonde hair, whatever, throws a great curveball. But the problem is that's not who you are spiritually, right? So there's a little bit of a discord between who you are spiritually and who your mind thinks you are. You might even just think you're a, a guy or a gal, or you might think you're smart or you're not. Oh, yeah, I'm not very smart. I didn't do very well on the ACT. Failed the ACT. So all of a sudden, because you failed the ACT, your mind thinks that's who you are. Now, do you think your spirit cares about your ACT? Your spirit knows that you're this being that's been living and has existed and you're powerful beyond measure. Yeah, but I'm fat. That's my mind telling me I'm fat. Or I can orient from my body. And my body basically wants pleasure or pain or procreate. That's pretty much what it brings. Or the party. What's for dinner? So sometimes we come to life and and we let our bodies, our desires, direct us. Sometimes if I have fear, my body might feel fear because I've got to go talk to my boss about whatever. So my body creates chemistry. My mind makes up a story. Yeah, he's not going to like me because of this and this and this, which creates complexity. But at any point, we can get back to our spirit. So however you get to spirit, some meditate, some read scripture, some will sing a hymn, some will just think of their God. Imagine your God just holding you as you're, you know, walking in with you to go talk to your boss. If you have to go in with your God, what on earth is your boss going to do that will matter? You can still feel peace, right? So body, mind, spirit. And I'm telling you, I teach this all the time to people and they come in and once they can start to recognize if they're feeling, you know, body, mind or spirit, Then we can get back to the spiritual core, I call it. We've got to get back to that spiritual sense of who we all are. And when we do, we feel peace instantly. Now, it doesn't change everything, right? It just changes how you see everything. If you just lost your spouse to cancer, you're going to probably have to operate at all three of those levels. Your body will miss that person. It will ache to be next to that person. It will create major pain chemistry. Your mind will start creating major fears and convolutions like, oh, am I going to be able to make it? I don't know if I have enough money. I don't even know where the insurance is. What if I can't find somebody else? What if I? What if nobody wants to be around me? Our fears start to come up. Fears don't exist in your spirit. They don't even exist in your body. Your body's going to respond to a stimulus. It's not just going to automatically feel the fear. Something's got to kick in, right? That might be the mind. So the mind starts to kick in and create stories for you. So a lot of times our grieving is us trying to manage our mind. A lot of times our fear, the most difficult things on this earth tend to be, I believe, conjured by the mind. 
So body, mind, spirit, we're doing it all the time. Coaching 101, the number one secret, let me tell you. You don't need to get in spirit. You already are in spirit. You just need to notice where you are. And the minute you notice if you're in body, mind, or spirit, you're already moving to spirit. Because the only thing that notices its mind is the spirit. Right? The mind doesn't notice itself. That's It thinks that that's who you are. But when you start looking at yourself like, are you kidding me? I'm making such a big deal over something that's so stupid. The minute you're starting to think that way, you're already moving into your, your spirit. Again, we are spiritual beings having a human experience. We're not just human beings having a spiritual experience. It's, it's the most powerful tool I've ever seen. I have a son that's in Mexico serving a, a mission for the LDS Church in northern Mexico. And we, ha- we got to talk to him on Mother's Day. And he just sat there and spoke spiritually to my other son that's about to go on a mission. And it was the most amazing spirit-to-spirit conversation you've ever seen. And I could see my son's mind spinning because, oh, he's so scared to go out and doesn't know what he wants to do. And my other son just basically shared his testimony, his belief, and the spirit talked to spirit. It was the most incredible thing. Folks, everybody out there, the people in the car in front of you, they're all spiritual beings. Whatever your religion, we're all just spiritual beings trying to make it through this crazy thing we call life. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Whether it's uh, whether we're talking about global warming, whether we're talking about you know international politics or famine or whatever is going on in the world, as we just learned, the more information that we can gather and garner, the better, right? But instead, uh, a lot of us feel very comfortable with minimal information and then maximal uh, uh, beliefs and. Um, and argumentation and all of these other things that go along with what complicate our lives, what complicate our relationships. Isn't it crazy that many times when we have, when we are the least informed, we feel the very most confident? I uh, talked the other day about Fortnite, a video game all the kids are out there playing, and um, a lot of parents don't like it. They just don't like it. And if you ask them why, then it's usually, well, my kids like it, and they're spending too much time on it. And then I just ask, have you ever played it with them? Have you ever gone to see what they're doing? When they're, well, I mean, I've walked by, yeah, and it's just shooting people. They're just shooting people. Have you ever watched a game fully all the way through? Have you ever seen what is going on? No, no. So we have all of this fear, but we're not informed. And uh, it, this this also becomes a big part of our relationships, right? Because... The reality is none of us in our in our interactions with others, none of us have all of the data. But boy, we sure act as if we do, don't we? We we need to in our conversations assume we don't know. And even if you know, don't assume you understand everything about why that person would drive that way, why that person would say such a rude thing, why that person would would be completely frustrated and and angry about something. I um we had a a friend when we were raising our family and younger that wouldn't would not absolutely would not let their child sleep over anywhere just wouldn't just stuff can happen that just horrible wouldn't let it happen no I mean and, and to a point where it was it was hard for the for the girl because this young girl was all of her friends were sleeping over they all got to do it, so she'd get to go stay there until, you know, late, and then she'd have to go home with her parents. And it makes sense, right? 
And uh, a lot of parent, other parents were frustrated, like just like what? You don't trust us? You don't think we're – you think we're going to do something to your daughter? Is that what this is about? It's not. But come to find out, the girl had been – the mother had been abused as a child at a sleepover. And it's still part of her mindset. It hurts. It It hurts bad. And the minute you understand that that's what the mother went through, you understand why she protects her daughter that way. It makes it understandable. These things don't always make things right or wrong, whatever that is, but it does make it understandable. So if you want more power with people, try to understand them more. Assume that you don't have the full story. Assume that there's more going on upstream that is maybe coming into this uh, the pool of water that you're dealing with, the pool or the situation that you have to engage in. Don't assume you know. Don't assume you're informed. In fact, the more confusing the situation is, the more likely it is that you don't know what's going on. So watch it. Pay attention to it. Slow down the conversation. Uh, just like we were just learning uh, from Anna Rosling Ronenland, slow down the the interpretation. We don't need to jump to conclusions. We don't need to um, we don't need to make something a bigger problem than it is. So just remember, none of us have all the data. And if you don't have the data, don't just quickly make it up. Go try to figure it out. Go try to gather more data and then see if it doesn't improve your condition. Anyway, just a little idea. We all need more understanding regardless, right? Not easy, this life, but uh, totally worth it and even worth it with people that drive us crazy. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. As we're all out there doing what we can to raise our children, our goal would be that they could be independent of us, right? That that finally, you know, when they go away to college, that they can do it and they can be independent. And uh, eventually we could circle back and create a really interdependent relationship with them where we are independent, they are independent, and we can go create something really powerful and wonderful together. The assumption is, though, that that takes place. And so one of the things I wanted to talk about in this Coach's Corner are some ways that we can help our children become more independent and and raise them on to a level of independence. Now, um, the one reason I bring this up is because I think we think they'll they'll do it, you know, just by the progression and maturity of life, that by the time they finally graduate from high school, they will be independent, right? Or when they get married, you know, they'll be independent. But it reminds me of um, a Steve Carell, Michael Scott scene in The Office where – he is in financial trouble. He has a lot of debt, and somebody Creed um, from the show suggests that he go and uh, and basically declare bankruptcy. And because he doesn't have a clue, Michael Scott doesn't. This character, he uh, he walks out into the the office where everyone is standing, and he yells at the top of his lungs in declaration. By the way, I declare bankruptcy. He declares his bankruptcy, and. <laughs> Everyone is – they're basically – you know, Michael, it's going to – you can't just declare it. You you, you got to actually – you got to file the legal papers and you've got to do all of that. Here's, here's a call. I declare bankruptcy! <laughs> well done, Michael. Now you have declared bankruptcy. 
It's not enough for our child to just scream at the top of the lungs, I'm mature or I'm independent enough. You know, at some point they've got to show it. And so um, there are some things we should be doing, I think, as parents to to help our children and to facilitate their independence. And I teach there's a lot of ways our kids have got to be independent, right? We want them to be whole children, healthy children. So we want them spiritually independent, socially independent, emotionally independent, intellectually independent. We want them financially independent. We want them to be able to be free to make real decisions on their own. And so let me just uh, go through some of these forms of independence, and we can all look at our own children and say, okay, maybe I need to zoom in on this one a little bit. One of the ways I talk about it is, and this would be kind of the center of the onion, is we've got to have our kids on a level of spiritual independence, I call it. Are they able to connect on their own to their deeper meaning, their deeper purpose, their higher power in life? Do they have a relationship with a higher power? If it's God, if it's, uh, you know, whatever your belief system is, we have got to be connected to that higher power in our life, especially in how that higher power influences what our purpose in life is really about. Do your kids have a, a, a sense in their life that their, their life means something, that it, they have a purpose here, that they have a very personal you know, mission that they are sent here to accomplish while they're here on this earth? Do they sense that? Are they pretty closely connected to what they're passionate about? Have you started with these teenagers to help them identify what their passions are, what their interests are? Do they, have, you, have you helped them figure out what their strengths are? What is it about their character that this world needs? Do they recognize that they are here as an agent, that they're here to make choices, that, that their destiny is not set, that they get to, to lead it and push? These are all very kind of spiritually grounded ideas, and it doesn't, I guess, necessarily mean you have to be religious, but spiritually connected for sure. And uh, if you're so inclined, as I am, to, to uh, you know, be religious, then go be religious, but use these ideas to make sure that they understand what right and wrong is, that they have a methodology in their brain to go figure out what is true. We'll continue the journey more straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Interesting uh, conversation. Matt, if you could just go to a therapist... Uh, or if you didn't need to go to the therapist and you could just do it yourself, we're going to put a lot of therapists out of business. <laughs> Ben's like, yes. I mean, therapists do great work, but many times they're just, they're they're really just reflective listeners, right? They're listening well. And what would happen if you had a friend that was a, a, just a really good listener, are you that kind of friend that you can perform that listening function, um, you know, for your partner to, to help get their emotions out? Oh, it's it's not easy. I get it. I know. I know. It's not easy. And so um, when you think about it, and I, I see this a lot in my practice, there's, there's these signs, okay? I call them, you don't need to just always be 
I don't know, totally ready and engaged to just listen to your partner. But there are times you have to be ready to be engaged and listen to your partner. There's three signs I look for, and I learned about them. Um, I learned about this concept as an emergency medical technician. So right after uh, uh, when I was about 21, I guess, I was an EMT on an ambulance, and I was certified in you know life support or basic life support and uh, learned all the tools and the rules and, and how, to, how to basically take care of somebody in an ambulance on the way to the hospital. And one of the first things they taught us is you got to check vital signs, right? Vital signs, because you need to know where your patient is. There's a very basic baseline for where your patient is, and you need to check, you know, pulse, uh, respirations, if you could, oxygenation, see how well they're oxygenating. You could take a, a blood pressure, just basic signs. And the neat thing about humans is we pretty much have these very basic vital signs. And then what happens is there's a very powerful um, pattern that doctors and, and hospitals use where when you come in and see them, you can say whatever you want to say about why what you're feeling, and they'll be listening to you. But while they're listening to you, they're going to check your vital signs. Right? They're going to check your temperature. They're going to check a bunch of different things. All of those are signs of something going on deeper down. And what I have found is just like we have it physiologically, we have vital signs. Emotionally, we have vital signs as well. So there's three signs I'm constantly looking for in the people that are around me. Negative emotion is a sign. There's a sign of something deeper going on. And if you see negative emotion in somebody, instead of yapping, instead of arguing and telling them your point of view, I wouldn't tell them. I would just try to understand where their emotion is coming from. So I look for negative emotion. I look for misunderstanding. And I look for mistrust. When I see those signs, I know I need to kind of get out of my agenda and get into the agenda of the other person. Right? So if if my... If my spouse comes home and they're slamming doors, that's negative emotion. I should see that, pay attention to that. I should try to understand what's going on. Hey, babe, I can see you're frustrated. Tell me what's going on. I'm just mad because the kids took my whatever and I can't find it and I've got to go use it right now. There's frustration. Behind every negative emotion, you're going to hear a story. People want to tell their story because they would love the emotion to go away. So what if as humans, we could just start paying attention to the negative emotion, the misunderstandings. Misunderstanding simply means when something's going on and you don't know why it's going on and there's a misunderstanding. If, I'm, if, if I have a, a person that's, that's quiet and, and shuts down, I'm going to know they have negative emotion and I don't understand exactly why. I shouldn't just guess. Is this because of what happened last year? I mean, last year's example of, of this same, you know, behavior may not be very accurate. So I, what I'd love to do is recognize the emotion. You seem really upset. What's going on? Share with me why you're upset. Because if I could get the story, that would increase my understanding, right? And then if I could understand the person and not, you know, make them worse, then they could trust me. So that's what we're looking for in our relationships. Emotional management, understanding, and trust. That's the best thing I've ever learned to know when I need to be listening to somebody. When I see that they're negative emotionally, when I don't understand why and I don't understand their reasoning, try to understand it, and do they trust me to share it? 
Anyway, that's where I'd start working with the people I love, the people I care about. A little coach's corner for you right there. Emotional management, it's hard stuff, let alone doing it with each other. Near impossible. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Really, the art of stillness, it's something we don't, we just don't do. And you know what else I, I really liked about his, Pico in general is he's just, he's really approachable. He's, uh, one of the things he, he didn't tell is a story that he was in um, Japan on business. And while he was there, he just saw such a different world. And he and he, be, he was called. He basically felt like he was called. He saw these temples. He saw um, little wooden homes. All of these incredible things he wanted to to make a part of his life. So he really he went to New York, quit, did did all these things. And within a week, I believe, he was back. Um, or relatively quickly, he was back to Japan. Now, when he got to Japan, he decided he's just going to go join a monastery. So he went to a temple, joined a monastery, and you're like, oh, wow, what a guy, Pico. And then a week later, he quit. He's like, I'm out of here. <laughs> These people, all they do is they do a lot of cleaning. And he didn't realize how much cleaning was involved in you know monastic <laughs> commitments. And so he moved about a block or two away from the monastery in this small little place apartment. And that's where he, he started his life and then ended up creating and finding his wife and her children. And then ended up creating again, a fairly monastic life he felt, um, but was able to offer more of himself, um, than just instead of just the cleaning. So anyway, powerful thing. And where I, you know, a lot of people are, aren't prone to go, you know, to a monastery or aren't prone to go do meditation or whatever yoga, But let me just suggest where you might want to create some stillness is in some conversations in your life. What if we could just be more still and um, in in listening and in hearing what people are saying? What if we just allowed more space in our talk, our conversations, so that everything wasn't always about – you know, me needing to compete, me needing to run away, me needing to argue, me needing to entertain you. So try just with your family, with your kids, with your spouse, creating, um, just creating peace, creating a space. Because I, I feel strongly that we need, we need to learn to just be still in our thoughts and allow um, other people to influence us more. We are so into trying to convince and convert everyone to our specific way of thinking that we sometimes don't even allow that spirit to come in. And that, that spirit, by the way, is is the definition of inspiration is where the spirit is inside, is coming from within. And if you truly want to inspire somebody, sometimes the best way to do that is to just shut your flapper, <laughs> not to be rude, but shut your mouth and allow your words allow your just sensitivity, allow your emotion, allow the peace to do the talking. And sometimes you'll find out it's a much better communicator than you ever will be. Uh, have you ever heard the quote that says, who you are speaks so loudly, I can't hear the words you're saying. So maybe the stillness that Pico's trying to teach us can come from just being the person that we need to be and and being the person we need to be in the way we need to be it, in the space we need to be it, at the right time we need to be it, 
it's it's that's the convergence i think of spirituality where all of a sudden everything we are in the right moment at the right time it can converge and we're an open you know vessel willing to be and do what we need to be and do in any space i know that sounds all foo-foo-y, but the reality is Think about your greatest moments. The One of the greatest moments of my life where I felt that spirit the most and stillness the most would be a baby being born. And it's pretty chaotic, right? Then there's that peace, that stillness when everyone goes quiet and the baby's there and all you do is you just hold your baby. And that... Now you can breathe. And then you obviously you've got to count the fingers and the toes because you don't, you know. You got to make sure you got everything, but the peace is there. And so I think in our lives, we'll, we'll feel that a lot more. I also think that peace, I think I'm, I believe in God and I think he wants you to feel peace. And interestingly, nothing seems to kind of create more, you know, almost anti-God than just complete chaos and overwhelming, um, just confusion. So turn some things off, test it. Test Pico's advice today. Test it. I dare you. Just create space. You dare do 15 minutes? What if you just in your marriages committed to listening to each other for 15 minutes a night? Oh, really? Oh, jeez. I mean, I love her, but don't make me listen to her for 15 minutes. Come on! You're not going to get to find out who she really is if you never listen. And if you're going to try to you know, influence your partner to listen, you might want to make sure that when you're talking, it's not always negative or it's not always, you know, complaining or whatever. We've all got something to do. So ask yourself, where are you going to go implement the lessons of Pico Iyer? Also forgot to tell you, his website is Pico, P-I-C-O, Iyer, E, oh, this is going to be hard, Pico Iyer Journeys.com, P-I-C-O, I-Y-E-R journeys.com Pico I-Y-E-R dot journeys.com Pico Iyer journeys.com Thanks for joining us folks We're going to take a break, come back and take off on our next topic. This is the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio Welcome back everybody to the Matt Townsend Show you know, one of my favorite guests of all time, Dr. Lisa Miller is joining us. And the topic is why I love it, but then her depth is incredible for me. And uh, the book, The Spiritual Child, is one that I think we all need to dig into to understand ourselves, I think, better, but also our children. Uh, here's what this is about. We, we focus so much on cognitive skills. We learn a bunch of things when we're young, cursive, spelling, math, and science. But teaching principles that the heart needs to understand is a different matter entirely and a delicate one. Even those, those, those skills about using our morality and using our character, uh, I think we may not be teaching them as much as we need to be. So our guest today is Dr. Lisa Miller. She's a professor and director of clinical psychology at uh, Columbia University, also the author of The Spiritual Child. She joins us now in studio. Dr. Miller, welcome to the show it's again. It's terrific to be here right here in studio with know, you, Matt. Thank I you. I love it. And I love having you here because last time we talked over, it was, you know, it was, you, were a lot, you weren't as close. But now I can actually feel your spirit. Likewise. It's cool. Likewise. 
Uh, and you're on campus here at BYU. You're going to be talking uh, and, and doing some some conversations with the students and faculty here on BYU. I'm so excited to be back here at BYU. You know, my friendship and academic relationship with BYU is nearly 20 years is it now. Really? How powerful! Tremendous colleagues. Um, really, BYU is at the cutting edge. Yeah for the whole field of psychology on bringing spirituality and religion right into the mainstream, understanding hard times and good times from a spiritual perspective. Well, and yeah. talk about that, because historically it seemed like we used to try to think that spirituality was kind of this weak, this weakness of humans, <laughs> and we'd kind of box it away and then just deal with the psychology but now we're seeing an interplay, a major interplay. Absolutely. And you're so right. You know, even 30 years ago, not so long ago, psychology had a very unfortunate view of spiritual life, which was that it was somehow a crutch for hard times. Right, right. But that has changed and we've come a very long way. Spirituality is now understood because we now have a basic science of mm -hmm. spiritual life as innate to every human being. Every single person is born from day one a spiritual being. Really? And that we can see in twin studies. We can see that in the patterns of human thriving, hmm. whether we look at health and wellness or even right into the core of the person with the x-ray eyes of an MRI. Yeah, yeah. We know that we are naturally spiritual beings and that we thrive and we flourish when we build foremost our spiritual heart and work from a spiritual core. That is, okay, that's amazing. Because now let me make sure, Columbia University. You got it. Almost the heart 20 of New years York. There. <laughs> <laughs> but this is, to me, because we've kind of, you've always sensed that. I mean, Emerson talked about mm -hmm. the divine spark. The, I mean, this has always mm -hmm. been a sense, and now we can validate it scientifically. The science has been enormously helpful in putting spirituality into the center of psychology. And we now have basic science findings. For instance, if we look at twin studies, twins raised together, yep. twins raised apart, we can see that about 30% of our capacity through which we feel the great love of the transcendent. 30% of our endowment in day one is in our genes. It's a heritable it's trait you. right there with you know, temperament, IQ, any other trait. Yeah. And yet two thirds of our capacity to experience the love and the transcendent relationship that comes from our own development of spiritual okay. life and how we're raised. Yeah. So, you know, two thirds socialized, one third heritable. Mm -hmm. It looks a lot like, most forms of learning and growth. Really? Yes. It's a very, so it is kind of, it's, it's, it's us. It's who we are. It is it's who we nature. are. It's our nature. Absolutely. The difference between spirituality and all the other variables we've looked at is that there is nothing as profoundly impactful in the human life as a personal relationship with the higher power. Really? I mean, of everything, you, of everything we could have, of good coping skills, of good uh, self-esteem, self-worth, you're saying it's the most important parenting, opportunity, anything from the outside or the Financial inside. Financial support, social status. Anything to have been looked at by science, all of those things. Don't hold a candle to the power of a strong personal relationship with the higher power. And within the broadband view of spirituality, yeah. it is really that core. It's the heart's relationship with, you know, from a global perspective, God, Allah, Hashem, yeah. Jesus, whoever, yeah. whatever yeah, faith yeah, yeah, tradition yeah. one may be from, that core spiritual heart. Which tells us, I guess, because it is universal and everywhere you go, there's some higher being or power or belief system, not maybe everywhere, but there's all of these other ideas of this higher power. There's something universal driving everyone to a higher power. Absolutely. And then when we see with puberty through time around the world, there's always a coming of age ceremony. A ritual. A, a ritual. 
where we honor and know the young person is emerging as a spiritual knower, mm-hmm. taking up the mantle, and with that responsibility. Yeah. Now you're a. Now you're a. Now you have agency. Now you have. Or now you have choice. Now you have choice, and, and it was we accountable. Have, you know, one day nine Navajo girls showed up at my classroom in Columbia unannounced. So I said, come in. I said, come in. And they stood up and they told, first and foremost, I said, anything you want, share with us a story. They told their coming of age ceremony. Oh, wow. And and now, indeed, we see with the science that with puberty, literally biological puberty, comes an augmented spiritual capacity in girls and boys. Really? And here our traditions have known this all along. Mm -hmm. So why do we fight it so much? Why does this why and why is there this dichotomy of science versus spirit? Yeah, in the past year I've been on book tour with the spiritual child and what I found is that when thoughtful people and there are millions of thoughtful yeah. people have a chance to really look at a science, a clear science that says we are naturally spiritual and if that is central to how we live, it is the greatest source of thriving and health known to medical or clinical science. People hear that and the left brain relaxes a little bit and they know that their critique and their logic and their sense has all been addressed yeah. and they start to be able to use those hard forms of knowing in tandem with other crucial forms of human knowing, intuition, knowing of the heart, hmm. the profound importance of direct knowing or ultimate mystical knowing. You know, yeah. People start to integrate our very many forms of human knowing. Once they know, having been raised in a very scientifically oriented society, that yes, there is absolute, it's not my opinion, yeah, right. there is a very strong body of science. That Backing now, <laughs> this, yeah. Right. yeah. That's great. Yeah. Well, I mean, and especially for somebody that's always kind of felt that, sensed that, that I can even, that I can connect to it and I feel that support. Mm-hmm. But then to kind of sometimes think, am I nuts? I mean, are people, do people think I'm nuts because I can refer to my uh, to a higher power that I believe is guiding me. You know, that th- doubt creates probably confusion for most of us. And there's such joy in having what you've just expressed validated. You know, I, yeah. I, don't, I don't see science as validating spirituality, but I see it as holding a mirror, as you've yeah. just said, to what we already knew in our heart. Right, and right. there's a great delight I see in people when the knowing of the heart is mirrored with the knowing of what I might call scientific witness, Mm -hmm. the collective witness. You know, one person can stand up in a house of meeting, speak in the first person and give witness. And we know it and feel it. Science listens to a chorus of people, a study sample, Mm -hmm. you know, an N of a thousand, a data set. And that is really collective witness. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is, isn't Mm -hmm. it? And then it, and then you can still, and then you can still feel a witness of a scientific witness. Yes. Isn't that amazing? Like, it's like, yeah, okay. And you don't always need the scientific witness, but sometimes you feel like you're fighting against it or your argument isn't as loud as the argument of science. That's very, very true. I have heard so many people echo that understanding that here I've always had a spiritual heart. Here I've sensed this was mm-hmm. true. I know there's something more. Yeah. And yet I have felt so invalidated, I hear people say. In every city, Seattle, yeah. oh, Houston, everywhere. New York, yeah. I feel so invalidated for my direct heart knowing. To have a science that yeah. says this is valid, this is real, knowing of the heart actually is the greatest source mm-hmm. of flourishing. Yeah. And don't you think maybe it's time, too, that we also don't have to differentiate necessarily the different approaches to this uh, higher transcendent power? Like now I can enjoy a Muslim's view 
and understand their connection to their God and a Buddhist. And I mean, how powerful if we could have dialogue where we could share these ideas with each other, where we could actually not, I mean, just commune. There is absolutely a universal spirituality. It is in and through every single one of us, this capacity. And to be able to hear that deep universal spirituality in the voice of a sister or brother from another faith tradition, from the other side of the earth, one that I may have never encountered before. Or even understand at all. Now, I would say that is actually reflective of the greatest educational opportunity which is to say perhaps an educational crisis that of we, our time, yeah. that we are not yet as a society spiritually multilingual. You know, It mm-hmm. is very important to embrace one's own faith tradition, right. one's own spiritual right. path, and at the same time hear the universal voice of spirit in the language and symbol and ritual of another. I love that. That can be taught. Yeah. And in fact, by the time a child is six, if that's not taught, Mazar and Banaji and her team at Harvard found that a child is more likely to think their name for the higher power is more real than that of a it. family of another faith tradition at age six. Interesting. And even more likely to share their school lunch with a child who uses the same name for the higher power. Really? So we've got to teach yeah. spiritual multilingualism young. Because we have a world at war because we can't agree on the name of the higher power. That's right. The cost could not be higher. Thus the need for the spiritual child, the new science on parenting for health and lifelong thriving. We need – that's how we do it. We've got to, I guess, make it a major part of our our educational process is to make sure we're teaching that. And here at BYU, you do that. I have – I have to say, in addition to being a center for spirituality and psychology, you are a center for interfaith discussion and yeah. welcoming people of all religious traditions. You really are a leader in yeah. that respect. I don't, I don't, doesn't that – to me, it's beautiful too just because uh, I, I'm changed. Just the other day, we had the Archbishop of Philadelphia and he spoke here and I got to hear him witness his, his Catholic view – of God and deity and our role as humans, as children of God, in a room full of probably 8,000 Mormons. And beautiful. had a most beautiful spirit there and a standing ovation, and it was incredible. And I sat there and I thought, this is so right. This is so right. Beautiful. Just keep bringing more people in and understanding more. We don't need to divide anymore, do we? And the standing ovation, a it celebration. Oh, it was incredible. A celebration of the common love of mm-hmm. God. That's right. And this idea that we need to we need to change the world by being by seeing the brother in each of us. And how wonderful that you're at the cutting edge of yeah. that here. Oh, that's powerful. Thank you. And and let's take a break. We're again we're speaking with Dr. Lisa Miller, author of the book The Spiritual Child, The New Science on Parenting for Health and Lifelong Thriving. Also go to our website, Lisa Miller PhD, and you can learn everything you need to know. Everything you need to know about her, about her work. Uh, We'll come back. More with Dr. Lisa Miller in just a minute. Stick with us, folks. Welcome back, everybody, to The Matt Townsend Show. So, so honored, again, to have Dr. Lisa Miller with us. Uh, She is the author of the book, The Spiritual Child, Educating the Head and the Heart. Um, She's teaching us, oh, actually, the title of the book is The Spiritual Child, The New Science on Parenting for Health and Lifelong Thriving. 
And seriously, I just love having you here, Lisa. It's You're, wonderful to it's be incredible. here with you, Matt. You are as deep a soul as well, I have found on thank Earth. You, you are well, a beautiful thank soul. Thank you. And I, I just feel like I know you from yes. before, yes. From, from wherever. Um, talk to me because you make a really big point that we have to educate the world. The spiritual side of us is natural. It's who we are. We are spiritual beings having a human experience, not human beings having a spiritual experience. Yes. Teilhard de Chardin's quote, I think his name. But you talk to me. We have to educate our children at a young age about this spirituality or apparently they lose it. It's really perhaps our greatest educational crisis and also, of course, our greatest educational opportunity yeah, yeah. to start to embrace natural spirituality in the child. Day one kindergarten, even before hmm. preschool, yeah. as parents, but also as educational institutions. We did a study. We looked at China, India, and the United States. And in every other country, the more educated that we become, the number of years in school, with each successive year, we become more spiritually aware really? in China, yeah. in India, but only in this country is education inversely associated with spirituality. Yes. We become more hard hearted. Or Sadly. More yeah, more yeah, more uh, I guess intellectual. And less able to perceive uh-huh. into the spiritual we reality. We lose the eyes to see. We lose the eyes to see, the heart to know, mm-hmm. and the will for spiritual activism. Are these other countries, China and India, are they teaching spiritual things in their classroom? So that's the very interesting point. I think in other countries, even when explicit expression of religion is forbidden, there is still in the daily course a spiritual awareness Uh as understood in deep universal ways. For instance, we looked around the world and found there were five, what you might even call as phenotypes Uh in our very wiring, five phenotypes of innate spirituality. One was a perception of love as a powerful transforming force. Love is not just an emotion like happiness. It is like gravity or magnetism. It moves things. Mm. Everyone on earth gets that. Everyone. Everyone. Universal. Universal. And yet if we look country to country, it is actually higher in China than in the United States. The concept of getting love as a power love is, is a power. lower in the United States than in China. Where explicit expression of religion wow. is not always allowed, right? So this is our birthright. This is who we are. And it's at play unless we silence the spiritual life. Interesting. And I think in a very unfortunate way, we have muted the spiritual awareness of our children through an implicitly materialist education. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's sell books. Let's make more money. Let's drive this economy. And your children are so often viewed as part of the economy. Yeah, right. right. You know, pick up and drop off. How was the math test? Did you win today? You know, how was the production at at school today? Transaction. Yeah. Just. Versus you are such a ray of light. uh I am so happy to see you. You seem happy. Tell me about what made you happy today. I'm so blessed to be your parent. Hello. Welcome home. Yeah. Another thing we see around the world is an understanding of our oneness, our interconnectedness. Again, China, India, everyone gets a basic perception of our interconnectedness and oneness. And yet in this country, we are blinded by separateness. Yeah, divisiveness. Divisiveness. I mean, you see it in the political world. And yet they could talk about, they they could even be from a religious kind of focused political party. And yet we see division, not... Unity. 
we, we see how we're separate, right. not whole. So I think we can invite everyone yeah. into a discussion of universal spirituality where everyone's entitled to speak in the first person yeah, I, in their own language, their yeah. own tradition. And we can hear each other yeah. through the first person mm-hmm. right into their soul, what they're really saying and know it with our own heart. And that divisiveness is more mm-hmm. here than in any of these other countries you studied. And part of, I think, the opportunity is in the schools mm-hmm. to have a respect for core spirituality. Part of it is our opportunity, of course, as parents. Yeah, right, right. And when we've looked at the data, there is nothing more powerful than a parent sharing his or her own spiritual life with their child. The child is absolutely riveted. And that includes the hard times. You know, mommy was in a time of struggle and darkness and I opened my heart and I prayed and I felt that great light. I felt the buoyed up love of God. I felt the connection with whatever language might be Mm -hmm. in that home. Right, right. Um, Even if it's life itself or the universe. Yeah, just like the powers, yeah, whatever, mother nature, whatever your source is, yeah. The loving, guiding, transcendent, ultimate presence. So, and we can teach that by modeling it, talking about it, showing it, using that voice. Running the narrative on our own inner mm-hmm. life. If we say, I'm going to pray now, would you like to sit by my side? Or I'm going to meditate. Do you want to be here? Do you want to finish my prayer? Is there something you'd like to read to the family? Interesting. Then yeah. it's that beautiful interweave that in the bonds of our human love is the great transcendent presence, what I might call in the spiritual child, the field of love, that interweaving of the great sacred presence through the ultimate commitment and love of family. Mm. Now, the LDS community gets that. Yeah. Yeah. We're big into that, aren't we? Family and the kind of the connectivity of generations, which is why genealogy is such kind of a spiritual pursuit. And family is a sacred, highest, ultimate. This is it. This is our ultimate goal. And you're saying that really is that's a perfect idyllic, I guess, incubator for a spiritual being. The science says that, you know, it's not enough to pick up a book, any good book yeah, at 20. Right. It's the lived spiritual relationship of parent and child that fosters the core of the child. And by the age of six. By the age of six, it's underway. But of mm-hmm. course, as we know, yeah, through we, childhood and puberty, yeah. it is that bond of the family you know, the love of the parent Mm -hmm. that is a taste of the sacred divine love. And in fact, I've had students say, you know, I grew up in the former Soviet Union. My father never spoke about religion. We were afraid we'd be persecuted. I never heard the word spirituality. But you know what? I am deeply spiritual. I am. Do you know why? Because my father loved me. I mean, he loved me. And when I think about God, it's all wrapped up in the taste of my father's love. Isn't that it? It is. That's where it can be unspoken because it's still felt. And it is that love of a parent is the sacred presence. Uh-huh. And the data now holds a mirror to that. The data says that if spiritual life comes through your mother, it is 80% protective against depression. If spiritual life comes through your mother and your grandmother, now three generations. Okay, so spiritual life meaning? A personal relationship with the higher with the power. higher power. Yeah. And so if grandma has it and mom has it and you have it. Three generations. Yeah. I am 90% less likely to have severe recurrent major depression. Unbelievable. There is nothing as powerful as spiritual life as passed through the generations. When the torch is passed from grandma Hmm. to mom to child. It's the inoculator. Yes. To humanity. Yes. That is powerful. Is it it, uh, spirituality or religiosity? Well, that's a very good point. So for 66% of people in the United States, a deep, authentic spiritual life is held in their faith tradition. Right. 
And for about 30%, spiritual life exists outside of faith tradition. They'll say in nature, in my relationship mm-hmm. with my family, I feel spiritual life. And there's a few number of folks who feel religious, but not spiritual. Yeah. They'll say, it is my culture, it is my heritage. So there is in every single one of us an innate capacity for spirituality, a deep compass, an endowment to yeah. feel the transcendent, to see into the spiritual bedrock, to perceive. That is in us. But the extent to which that's cultivated and how is about two-thirds an embrace okay. very often of religion and faith yeah. tradition. Yeah. Now, the only time people get in trouble, we've seen statistically, is when we have a strong adherence to creed absent the spiritual heart. Right. And that wreaks havoc both on the individual and the collective. Yeah. So if all of a sudden you are seemingly practicing or using religion but not having the the connection and the heart, the love. The love. And then you're then it's a facade. And then we don't see the benefits that otherwise yeah. are derived. So mm-hmm. it, it actually might induce stress, it seems like, because you're a counterfeit. Well, and when teens find themselves in challenging and questionable situations with alcohol, with sex, they absent the spiritual connection actually are not able to cope. Oh, wow. So that rigid adherence to creed minus the deep felt spirituality actually Uh is associated with having crossed the line difficulty with substances and difficulty handling intricate situations. So it really is, uh, it's an advantage in almost every, I guess in every way to, to at least talk about what you believe. And for the parent to live it and show it. You know, uh-huh. um, if I get in a little tiff with the woman at the checkout counter, awkward as it feels, I need to go back with my kid I by know, my side yeah. and apologize yeah. and say, I'm sorry to you. And then also, I'm sorry to God. Yeah. Because today was a gift and I, I spoiled a little bit of today. I'd like to repair this, renew it, and rejuvenate oh, it. And when we repair things with one another mm-hmm. and with loving higher power, there's a rejuvenation taught to the child, a possibility, and an awareness that our every act is mm-hmm. of significance. The spiritual clock always runs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess connect all goodness. I mean, I mean, this to me seems to me our ability to forgive somebody, our ability to let go of our past, our ability to overcome our fears. There's all of these, our shames, our guilts, they're all connected to the spiritual self. And as a parent, we can be honest and open and say, you know, I felt guilty. I felt shameful that I did this. And I am going to apologize and try to repair it in Mm -hmm. my action. And would you sit by my side while I try to repair it and replenish us as family with God? Yeah, yeah. That is the greatest gift we can give our children. And it requires a humility on our part and openness and transparency on our part. And yet science says when we share of our spiritual heart with our children. It is the most generous and important contribution we can make to their inner life and even their outward path. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess when you think about it, even maybe more important than getting them into the best school. Oh, we stand on our head with parents, you know, extracurricular travel, soccer, three tutors, learn this instrument and then this one too. And yet the science says there's nothing as profoundly helpful to the child as a core inner heart, a Mm -hmm. spiritual inner life, even in terms of outward success. Unbelievable. If you look at college freshman GPA, there's four practices in living that predict GPA above and beyond IQ. You got to eat breakfast. You got to get your sleep. Keep a planner so you show up. 
and spiritual reading and reflection is directly like reflected in GPA. If you've had a prayer and read your scriptures, that you have a bigger world and you see things in proportion and you're buoyed up by a path that is a true authentic path oh, of calling and purpose. That's beautiful. You know, any given day, if I'm here for myself or if I'm here to shine as mm-hmm. an individual, then, okay, today's great. I got an A on the math test, but yeah. tomorrow's not great because right. I got to see. Right. right. If I'm here as a soul on earth, if you've taught me as my parent that I'm here as a soul on earth, then when today I got to see, that's just noise yeah. amongst a much bigger trajectory of meaning and purpose mm-hmm. and contribution. I'm here as a soul on earth to give. That's right. I'm here to give. And that's ex- and then we turn outward. Then the arrows, the, the arrows aren't about us anymore. They're not turned into us. Now that I know what I know, I turn them up to my God, my deity, and then I turn them out to my brothers and sisters. And that's a much bigger life. And that's therapy, right? I mean, that's healthy. That's just cathartic. Then it's not about me. And, you know, we've put people in an MRI, the very same nice person, and had them tell us two stories. One is a story of stress. One is a story of their sacred relationship. When we hear the young person, 18 through 25, college student, New Haven, tell us a story about stress. It is never about the time I climbed Everest or the time I grappled (laughs) with, you know, Mandarin or it is a story about I've got to get into this school. I've got to get this job. I've got to have this happen for me. And that lights up in the MRI, the same part of the brain associated with craving and drug addicts. Oh, wow. Our chronic stress in our culture is an attachment. It is in a craving stance. Yeah, yeah. And it has to do with the self-focus, the atomistic yeah. self, in hot pursuit of what we think in an ego-based level we want. Now, right. take that same person, because we're all good at yeah, heart. Yeah, yeah. Put the hand on the gear shift, shift it from the stress and craving story to the spiritual narrative. And these stories, of course... Are beautiful. Uh-huh. I was in a dark time of doubt and I opened my heart and I felt the great presence of God. I felt the love. I felt the brightness and I knew things were as they were meant to be. Or I returned home from college to my faith tradition, sat by my family's side. And as we said the prayers with which I'd grown up, I felt this illumination. I felt the presence, the loving presence and I knew life was as it should be. That's a different story. Totally. Same kid. Yeah. Now, when that college student shifts the narrative to the spiritual story, no more craving brain. Right. And what lights up instead are the regions of perception. The life that we see becomes bigger and fuller. Emotional perception. Yeah. Life has more pixels. Mm-hmm. You, have, you have greater definition. And you see into reality. Yeah. You open Greater your, movement. Yeah, you're less cornered. There's and, more opportunity. And you see life as it really is, yeah. more yeah. than abundant. before. Abundant. That's what uh, Christ said. I, I am here to give you life more abundantly. Beautiful. That's a choice of how we use our inner life. Isn't that amazing? Same kid. Wow. And the brain reflects it. Yeah. Well, and again, back, and an addiction, it's the, it would be the source of the addiction too, right? Just this, the way we think, the way we perceive. Right. And of course, addiction to substance, but yeah. addiction to having. It's the golden calf, uh-huh. right? right? right, right. Got to have this, got to have that. Whether it's money or this job or this something else. Yeah. And that is a narrowing field. It gives us a smaller life. Yeah. And the lack of attachment, the surrender, and the connection with the ultimate reality opens up a much more abundant life. You're amazing. Dr. Lisa Miller, you're beautiful. You're beautiful. Seriously, this is is my favorite show ever. This is a great honor and joy and is deeply meaningful to me. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. And I wish you all the success in your speaking here at BYU and life, of course. I look forward to speaking today. You're going to be great. And I'm going to 
go start directly teaching my children as much as I can. You've motivated me. I bet they've already seen a lot through you, Matt. They have. We, we, we have a really a f- thing I affectionately call the prayer fight every night at my house because mm-hmm. we have a family prayer, but the kids are like not wanting to. So it always it kind of starts with a fight and then it turns into a spiritual moment. It's beautiful. 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 The prayer fight. Uh, Dr. Lisa Miller is her name. The book is called The Spiritual Child, The New Science on Parenting for Health and Lifelong Thriving. Go to lisamillerphd.com to get more information about that and everything she does. She's a gift to the world. Thanks again, Lisa. It's a joy. Thank you. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we'll continue uh, just this hour of the Matt Townsend Show. I don't know that you can get more profound than what we've just been through, but uh, we'll see if we can elevate your life even further. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Ah, no, I, I really did. I love that interview. Everyone's like, you're just, you're just so into her. But the topic is fascinating to me because I see all of us that are sitting here, you know, going to church, trying to be healthy people, Christians believing in what they believe in, and yet so miserable a bunch of us. So how could we be so? supposedly spiritually inclined, but miserable physically or emotionally or, you know, financially, so many different ways. Well, maybe we just need to walk our own walk. Talk, quit talking about it and just start living it. Hmm. Anyway, uh, another way, I think, though, to elevate your spirituality, obviously community service and helping the Girl Scouts. What better way to help the Girl Scouts than buying some cookies from them? According to statistics gathered by data scientists at Under Armour from their food tracking app, MyFitnessPal, we are in the middle of what could be considered Girl Scout cookie season, right? But utilizing three years of data obtained from the app by more than one million users, this is what they found out. If you are about to buy some Girl Scout cookies and you want to make sure that you buy the most popular brand or version – Um, This is what you need to be focusing on. What would you say of all of their choices? Okay, so the the Samoas, mm, those are good. Tagalongs, yeah, those are pretty good too. Um, Thin Mints, Benjamin, what would you say? Best cookie? Samoas. Samoas, again, because you lived in Hawaii. No, just because they're really good. Okay, because you like yourself some coconut. And uh, caramel, oh, and shortbread, chocolate drizzle. Mm, 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 mm. Personally, I am a Thin Mint guy myself. And that puts me in the lead. Not to brag. Ben, shut your mouth, pal. No, shut your mouth. Just shut it. Ooh, nothing to slurp, Ben. No, I, I got some milk as well. It's really, really good. Ben, this is gross. How could you chew and talk at the same time? You just did it. You were chewing and talking. I, I don't know. The Thin Mints, folks, they are, according to my Fitness Pal data, far and away the most popular Girl Scout cookie with twice as many instances of tracking as the runner-up Samoas. 
So you're unoriginal. Yes, I absolutely am. And I love me some Girl Scout cookie thin mints, and I like to eat a sleeve at a time. I don't know what that does to me physically, but my wife says it causes heart disease. But I said it makes me thin. Well, you can either live longer miserably or live shorter happily. Amen, brother. That is great advice. Brought to you by a guy that makes ice cream in his bathtub. Yep. (laughs) Thin Mints. Uh, Terry's uh, just coming in, and we don't even have time to talk to him. But uh, Terry, we know, is obviously a tag-along guy uh, because that's the third most popular cookie. Uh, Mint. Thin Mint, folks. Go have a Thin Mint on Dr. Mint. Or Samoa. Just prefer the Thin Mint myself. 